0: Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans in Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future Vintage over Future Garbage. Find picnicware on Instagram at picnicware, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at vintage. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between shop journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old flame mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Clothes Wars, the podcast that is really excited to say... Donald Trump is no longer the president (laughs) and you know Joe Biden seems like a good dude and holy shit we have a woman vice president I seriously cried just like ugly cried mascara running down my face cried because (sighs) this is just like remember those memes that were like this is the future liberals want Well, guess what? This is the future that I want, and here it is. Yes, there's a lot of work for us to do, but I'm happy to take this moment and just be really happy and excited and optimistic. (laughs) Well, that was a really long intro, so I'll also just say that, hey, I'm your host, Amanda. Amanda. Today is a pretty mega sode, but like a lot of our longer episodes, this one can easily be broken down into bite-sized servings to last you until our next episode. This is going to be our second hotline episode where I take some calls about all kinds of things. In fact, there's so much in this episode that I'm pushing my plan to talk about the nefarious origins of the anti-litter movement to our next episode. Don't worry there will be plenty of trash talk in this one. I mean, it's trash month, right? We can't forget that. And I'm loving all of the trash-related content you've been sending me on Instagram. If you have a trash find, i.e. something you found on a trash pile that now lives and flourishes in your home, send me a pic or tag me on Instagram. Listener Tori shared an awesome end table in her very cute apartment that she found in a trash pile, and it looks amazing. I mean, my house is filled with someone else's trash, so I literally don't even know where to begin. So let's start with your finds. <laughs> I also just wanted to add that I had intended to put a conversation with Kyle, you know, the only guy that's ever called the Close Horse Hotline, I have a conversation that I recorded with him more about this like gentlemanly style, but this episode is just so long. Hopefully I can get it into next week's episode because it's it's really good. So what is in this episode? Well, we have a phone call from Gabriella about grocery delivery services and their impact on the world. Following that, we have an email, which is like a futuristic form of the phone <laughs> that feels like it's from the past. We have an email from an anonymous source about returns, waste, and NDAs. Then we're going to have a conversation with another previous guest, my friend Jem, about Marge Simpson and her outlet store Chanel suit. And then last, but obviously not least, a conversation with Selena Sanders about what she's doing in 2021 as an activist and an entrepreneur. And she's also got and I'm really still sort of shaken up by some of the stuff she told me. She's got some really mind-blowing info about the future of the fashion industry. So as you can see, there's a lot going on. I mean, hold on to your hats because this is going to be quite an episode. I'm actually going to skip the Patreon shout outs in this episode only because there is already so much in this. So, the most recent new patrons will get their shout out on Sunday. I mean, there's just so much going on here today. So, let's get right into the hotline with this call from our friend Gabriella.
1: Hello, Amanda
2: and close horses. This is Gabriella Antonis. I have some
1: episode notes from 46. That I just was thinking about Um, one thing I thought of when you mentioned people who get their groceries delivered is the fact that I've been told by an inside source that shops and delivers for Instacart that since the pandemic, if you're shopping at a store that works with Instacart, then there are honestly usually more Instacart workers shopping in the store than actual customers on any given day now. Instacart has no program for reusable bags. I think that they need one because right now the two options are paper or plastic. Some of the stores eliminated plastic and charged the customer for each paper bag. And then there are stores like Costco or BJ's where the Instacart worker puts the groceries in cardboard boxes. Believe it or not, there are some customers who would be pissed if you didn't give them any bags at all, like from a normal grocery store. We, the public, need to put pressure on these companies to create a program where each customer, when they sign up, needs to contribute their own reusable bags at a drop-off location and be fine with never seeing them again. So the whole point of this is to not Definitely not encourage people to buy new ones, but we all know that we have a thousand of these reusable bags. And if we could eliminate the paper and plastic bags used by Instacart customers alone, they would be a huge dent in the problem. Maybe this could only get done if the workers demand this if they ever unionize. I know sanitizing the bags could be a concern so maybe this idea would be better executed when we get to herd immunity in America, but the public needs to call this out, as well as advocating for essential gig workers like Instacart. They don't get benefits, they never got hazard pay, and they are responsible for their own PPP. They're putting miles and wear and tear on their car, and they don't get hourly or salary. These workers are 10.99. They get an Instacart payment, which is determined by the company or the app based on how many items the customer is getting and how far, like, mileage the customer was from the store. And then also their tips can be changed by the customer for 24 hours. So there's, like, 1% of the customers they did a study will change a tip to zero. But mostly people don't do that. Only the real assholes will lower the tips after. But these workers need to at least get minimum wage as well as their Instacart payment and tips because they need to be able to send part of their little minimum wage check to a 401k. This is a whole group of people being left behind, and this part of the industry of essential workers is going to remain vital permanently. If these workers remain with no benefits, driving their cars into the ground, no way to save for retirement, then how can they dig themselves up from poverty? If they can never earn enough to buy a house, this group of essential workers will be stuck in poverty if we don't appreciate their value and contributions to our society. If we push Instacart to create a reusable bag program We know each bag would definitely meet the 45 to 85 use range for the reusable plastic ones. And if it was a poly one, that would only need 35 to eliminate its carbon footprint. We know they would all get way more than that. And it sounds like Instacart could claim that this would be a logistics nightmare to figure out, but it is possible to solve this problem. Instacart is better than it ever was. It exploded in 2020 because of the pandemic, and they need to be held accountable for the carbon footprint that they are creating from the profits they're generating. Climate change is not only a consumer responsibility. We need to let these businesses know that we will boycott them, that we're not going to take it anymore. This feminist cares about workers' rights, equal pay, and all that. And then finally, I just wanted to close... Was saying that I'm so glad you talked about unions in this episode, episode 46. I'm so pro-union. I'd love to see them make a comeback and be even stronger than they were at their largest point. I mean, you know, just, yeah, this, this group of essential workers for Instacart people, the gig workers need to unionize, Lyft and Uber drivers need to unionize. All retail and essential workers need to unionize because they all take way too much abuse underpayment and underappreciation. So thank you for everything that you do. I love you all. I love all the listeners. This is a movement and don't be overwhelmed. I hope this doesn't feel like a piling on thing. I just wanted to shed some light on this specific thing.
0: Thanks for doing trash month. Bye. So I have so much to say in response to Gabriella's message. First off, Her message comes at a perfect time because just this week, Vons and Albertsons, which are the two biggest grocery store chains in California, they announced that they were laying off their entire in-store grocery delivery teams. So we're talking about the people that pick the orders, pack them, and deliver them. And they're laying all those workers off in favor of using Instacart instead. So let's just dig into this a little bit more. Well, first off, most of these now unemployed or about to be unemployed store workers were in a union, right? So that means they received a living wage, full-time hours, and benefits, you know, like health insurance, you know, vacation days, sick days, all of that. All of that was paid for by Vons and Albertsons. When you hear that, and you already know that Instacart provides none of this to their gigs slash contract workers, then you see why it made financial sense for these chains to shift to Instacart. It saves them so much money, just like period, full stop. That's why they did it, right? Well, that's great, I guess, if you're a stockholder or you're an executive waiting for your bonus, but this is complete disregard for the humans who have been doing this job, putting their lives at risk during a pandemic for the better part of a year. What will these workers do in a pandemic with incredibly high unemployment? Like, what's their next job? Sure, you know what? Maybe they can get hired by Instacart where they will make less money and have no benefits. How is that ethical? And by the way, another chain in California, Pavilions, has already made the switch to DoorDash. I see a lot more of this coming in the next few months particularly in California, but probably elsewhere, too. Why specifically in California? Well, it's all related to a newly passed and very controversial law called Prop 22. So what is that? If you don't live in California, you haven't heard of this at all. I'm going to read this description from a news article that says it so much better than I could. (laughs) The switch to independent contractors for grocery delivery is all part of California's Proposition 22, which essentially gutted worker protections in order to make it easier and cheaper, for companies to utilize delivery app companies like Shipt and Instacart instead. Officially known as the App-Based Drivers as Contractors and Labor Policies Initiative, Prop 22 is a measure that would classify drivers as independent contractors under California state law. Prop 22 classifies delivery drivers as independent contractors instead of real employees in order to avoid offering a guaranteed hourly pay, Labor protections and benefits. So, this is Prop 22 is great for all of these companies that rely on gig workers because they can demand more and more work out of people that work for them while paying them less money and sort of making them have to rely on tips, right? Now, Maybe you don't know a lot about California, but propositions are also called ballot measures, meaning that they are laws that are voted into law, or not, by voters. So the voters of California approved this law after a very contentious, very confusing, and incredibly expensive PR campaign waged by some of the biggest gig worker companies, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash and Instacart, among others. They spent more than $200 million, the most money that's ever been spent on a ballot measure. $200 million that could have gone into the pockets of their workers, right? No, instead, they spent $200 million to convince voters that gig work is good for the employees, that it offers more flexibility and, well, more money. These are all up for debate. I'm just telling you what their campaign was. But really, Prop 22 was a reaction to a state law that required all of these gig employers to actually begin guaranteeing benefits and wages for their workers by technically designating them as employees instead of independent contractors, because that's what they are. That's what they were previous to the passing of this state law. They were independent contractors. What Prop 22 did is guarantee that these people remained independent contractors. The advertising for for Prop 22 maintained that workers would lose their opportunities to drive, deliver, and pick out your groceries because designating these workers as employees would bankrupt the companies. They would be, you know, just forced to shut down and all of these workers would be out of work because making them employees would be too expensive. Now, that's some creative and cruel logic, right? Because if your company... (laughs) can't stay in business without exploiting workers, then why are you in business? Well, unfortunately, the campaign worked. And now Uber, Lyft, Instacart, and DoorDash, they want to take this campaign sort of national, right? Because they want to guarantee that gig workers stay independent contractors, that they have no financial security, et cetera, because it allows them to grow and grow, especially, and this is the part that makes me super nervous, especially via partnerships with other grocery store chains, drugstores, department stores, you name it. A big chunk of these retailers that already offer delivery services are still doing them in-house, especially when we talk about groceries. Now, Target uses shipped, I know that but not everyone does, right? What Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, these kinds of companies want is they want those companies to ditch their employees in favor of the cheap labor of the gig economy. This is a very bad thing, and you should be angry about it. And I think it's important to also think about how gig economy has changed the way people work in our country. And I think it underscores sort of why so many people have been struggling during the last year? Because normally, if you drive for Uber and then you can't anymore, you are not eligible for any sort of unemployment benefits. Now, thanks to the CARES Act and the Heroes Act, these people receive pandemic unemployment assistance, which has been up in the air, by the way. Most people in Pennsylvania who receive that PUA haven't been paid yet this year. still, That will work out and they will have benefits. They will have this safety net, but that is not the standard. And I think that's really terrifying, the idea of more and more people becoming gig workers, independent contractors, and no longer having any safety net at all. Neither their own personal savings nor a government safety net. So what can you do about it, right? Well, for one, if you live in California, let Albertsons, Vons, and Pavilions know how angry you are, and don't shop with them. For the rest of us, we need to be watchful of similar changes in our areas, and as soon as a grocery store that we shop does something like this, we need to come out in mass and let them know that this is not okay. And if you're getting groceries delivered, which I know a lot of you are, for the love of God, please tip well and be nice. These people are putting their lives on the line so you can stay safe. We actually stopped getting our groceries delivered a while ago because after I lost my job, tipping well and paying delivery fees was just no longer in our price range. So I'm back to shopping in person. And I know how nervous I am every time I go to the store. Imagine putting yourself at risk like that all day, every day, while living off of miserly tips. Nothing changes if we don't unpack our own biases and privilege. If we don't see Instacart shoppers or retail workers as humans just like us who have dreams and loved ones, hobbies, favorite foods, inside jokes, if we can't see that they deserve all the things we want and need, then nothing changes. Because until we get over this ugly classist idea that these people, these essential workers are somehow lesser than us then we'll never create a fair and equitable system. I mean, raise your hand if you've worked retail, waited tables, made drinks, nanny, delivered food, driven for Uber. I'm raising my hand too. Keep your hands up if a customer or an employer, a manager, a coworker treated you like garbage. Yep, I see that almost all of those hands are still up, including mine. Doesn't that make you angry? Doesn't that make you want to advocate for better wages and benefits? Stand up, be loud, demand change, and tip your drivers. I also wanted to say that I love Gabriella's ideas about the bags. Of course, I've been thinking of this nonstop since I heard her message. And I think there is a way for these delivery services to deliver in reusable bags, maybe with a deposit from the customers. When you return the bags... Maybe you give them to the driver on your next delivery or there are like drop-off points. You get your deposit credited to your account. If these bags were owned by, say, Instacart, they could easily track them and launder them on an industrial level. The laundry is not the hard part of it, actually. I know it sounds weird, but it's not actually that much different than the systems used by, say, Rent the Runway or La Tote. And in fact, it's a lot simpler It's just about like this person needs five bags. You scan them, they'll have little tiny RFIDs on them. You scan them, pack up their groceries. The next time you drop off some groceries, they give you the five bags back. You scan them back into the system and they get their quarter a bag back or something. These bags are cheap, by the way. (laughs) Having worked on the other side of this business, I know how cheap tote bags are. I also think it's a business opportunity for industrial laundries, bag makers, all kinds of people. Like there's something there. And this is the future. This is how we save our planet. It's with innovation like this. So I'm excited to keep thinking about this. (laughs) Maybe one of you is listening and you're like, this is it. This is my business. I'm starting it right now. If you have something you want to share, an idea, a thought, a response, a story, call the Close Horse Hotline at 717-925-7417. I can't wait to hear from you. Okay, another way you can reach me is via email, Amanda at closehorse.world, and I received a great email about returns and corporate waste. All the details have been removed to protect the confidentiality of the sender. Hi Amanda, let me tell you about some grade A fashion excess. There is a physical damages store inside of the warehouse of an online-only retailer that sells damaged clothing and goods that are often returned to them by negligent customers, open to full-time employees only. Inventory is first processed by the returns team, and if they can't process the return or fix any damage within a minute or so, it's literally timed. They have productivity metrics to meet, and I'm just going to jump in here and say that that is an industry standard. (laughs) Or if the item can't be sent to dry cleaning, typically it must meet a certain retail value threshold to be worth sending to dry cleaning, then it is sent to the damage store. Here are some most common types of damage the store sells. Makeup stains on white garments, especially on collars. Actually, all types of stains in all places. (laughs) Vendor-driven issues that the vendor no longer wants back. They sent the wrong item or it's missing information like fabric or leather content or it's unfinished, i.e. pattern marking still visible once the garment is sewn together. And I'll jump in here and say that this kind of stuff happens a lot more often than you think where maybe the order comes and there's an egregious fit or quality issue with it, but the retailer doesn't know until after customers are already buying it. In that case, often... And this really speaks to how cheap our clothing really is and how low the actual physical value of it is. In most cases, the vendor doesn't want it back. The vendor's like, hey, just keep it and destroy it. Do whatever. I'll just give you a credit for it. So I'm, a, I'm guessing, I don't know if it happens at this company. This is happening pretty commonly all over the place. And it does make me wonder what happens to a lot of those clothes. I think they go to the landfill. Anyway, what else? Back to this letter rips on seams, snags in silk and knits, shoes tried on dirty or uneven floors, especially leather sold shoes because the dirt absorbs into and leaves dents in the leather. I've totally bought shoes that definitely were returned under those conditions. I don't mind that much, but it's pretty common. (laughs) Missing belts or missing matching pieces. In the rental world, like think of someone like Rent the Runway or La Tote, these kinds of items actually get damaged out when they lose these pieces just another thing to think about um missing buttons here's another really common one that makes me laugh it's happened at every job i've worked at customer just sends back random stuff (laughs) this is like a weird phenomenon where a customer may accidentally send back their own shirt i had a job where someone sent back their engagement ring we were able to track it down but this this happens a lot and i i don't know how designer knockoffs these could be swap designer tags on cheap stuff or well-crafted designer dupes and I asked the sender about this I was like what And, and they said basically someone will return a knockoff copy of what they bought so they get to keep the real deal get the refund back and then the retailer is left with this knockoff which they can't resell and Uh, That blew my mind. It does not surprise me. It really started the wheels turning in my head about retail scams. (laughs) Uh, If you have a good retail scam you want to share, please send me it. I'm very fascinated by scams. Not when a person is being scammed, but in this situation where people go to this extreme level to scam a company, it's kind of incredible to me and just shows, man, there are so many smart people in this world. um okay what else here perfume cigarette and pet hair damage influencer slash studio damage you know basically like they send clothes to celebs influencers or even you know they shoot them in their own studios and when it comes back it's damaged this has happened to me a lot of jobs too I mean even it can be as simple as like some makeup on it you know getting snagged something ripped um spilled drinks lots of wine (laughs) and liquidated merchandise. That means the item was returned or pulled from the site well after the fashion season's been discounted to final sale and no longer worth the effort to keep on the site. There's been a time where the store also had crotch-stained swim and lingerie, oh, bloody shoes, I don't want to know, accessories with broken glass or ceramic, and hey, some crazy customer even sent back a fake designer wallet with heroin in it. Wow. <laughs> this is the world of e-commerce okay this is what it's like obviously selling any of this is unhygienic and a health risk so the store asked the returns department to stop sending actual garbage to the store but it's also interesting that customers feel entitled to send these items back in this condition it's not shocking to me but oh man i mean i know i know i've seen i've seen enough crotch stains <laughs> to know anyway the store is considered an employee benefit which lets full-time employees shop the company's damaged clothing assortment and brands firsthand at super low prices like employees have bought thousands of dollars worth of designer clothing for one dollar a pop most items sell for between 75 to 90 percent off msrp but because the volume of damaged returns outweighs the customer base maybe 50 to 100 employees who shop the store regularly, discounts are deepened even more to move volume. Again, it's considered a fun, non-essential employee perk. The store has limited space and a never-ending influx of damaged goods and a small customer base, so the store has to be selective about what gets put on the floor. That means, you guessed it, they fucking dunk so much perfectly wearable clothing in the garbage before it even has a chance in the store. They also do not donate items anywhere. Employees are welcome to purchase items to donate themselves. The company can't necessarily stop that, but that's putting the work and cost onto the worker. And I think that's a really important call out. In fact, I'm just going to jump in here for a moment and say, selling these clothes to the employees for even $1 saves the company so much money, like so much money. Because not only are they getting $1 back, which who even cares on at that point, point. They're not paying someone $1, $5, $10 to take that away. And so this is really smart. A lot of companies actually opt for this in some way or another. Furthermore, if the company wants to donate, I'm going back into the email now. Furthermore, if the company wants to donate clothing themselves, there's of course tons of yellow bureaucratic tape that no one ever even tries to make this happen. And this is everywhere I've worked. I have tried so hard to donate. It is so hard, especially if your company is pretty large. Of course, this pressure to throw away or destroy perfectly fine clothing comes from the vendors themselves, i.e. the brands that this company is selling. The idea that their clothes could end up at thrift stores means their brand is no longer aspirational or elevated, which is obviously insane and extremely classist. Also, the extra bit of classist touch here is that it is not open to part-time employees or contractors only open to full-time employees. As we know from your fab podcast, the excess of these companies is standard in the fashion industry and just one link in the chain of excess from production to vendors to buyers to e-commerce to customer. This listener goes on to tell me that basically at their company, everybody signs an NDA, every employee. If a guest of an employee comes to shop at this damages store, they must also sign an NDA. And in the rare occasion where part-time employees and contractors are also allowed into the store, they must also sign an NDA. According to this listener, quote, nothing, literally nothing is done without an NDA at this company. And oh, it's so common. It's so common. I have so much to say about this email here. I mean, none of it surprises me. And like I said, this idea of a damages store is pretty common in the world of retail. However, I will say that some companies won't even put together something like that because they are so paranoid that somehow their employees will steal or scam them. They would rather pay those employees to damage stuff out, like cut it up, as we talked about with Anna, or pay... A company to haul it away. At least in this situation, these clothes are finding a new home rather than, than the dumpster. So that's like a silver lining. So this company somewhat respects their employees, you know, enough to let them buy damaged goods. Well, until you get to the NDA. Based on what I've heard back from some of you, a lot of you were surprised by the rampant and ridiculous use of NDAs and severance agreements, while others of you were like, uh, yeah, I have also found myself silenced and feeling very upset because I signed a severance agreement, you know, because I needed money. That's the crux of why it's so unfair. Everybody who's reached out to me about their experiences signing these kinds of agreements did not feel that it was fair. They did not feel that they had an option. So I was talking to Jem before we recorded the conversation that's coming up next, and I was telling her about how easy it is to be strong-armed into something that is bad for you, even when you're super smart, professional, have life experience, because the balance of power is so skewed in that situation. I told her the story I'm about to tell you with all pertinent names removed to illustrate this example of being so terrified and anxious in a moment that you totally forget what's happening to you is both unethical, but also certainly illegal. I'm going to share this story because there is power in sharing our stories of others hearing them and saying, wait, you know, something similar happened to me. How do we join together and prevent this from happening to others? Or maybe nothing like this has happened to you, But you'll hear these stories and you'll think, okay, that's it. How do we get together and make sure this never happened again? Because the personal is political. And sharing a personal experience can literally power a movement. So here's the story. So I worked for a company for 10 years in a variety of different capacities. I'd moved all around the country and held a lot of different positions. So my last job, for this company was working in a creative role, but like working, you know, inside a store. And I, you know, I was like in a weird place in my life. I'd worked for the same company for 10 years, which is a really long time. And I felt like it was time for me to go on and do something else. And I also just, I don't know, I was just wasn't happy in my life. I wanted to go live somewhere else, be around different people, try something new. And Specifically, I really wanted to move to California. And I was thinking San Francisco or LA. I'd been visiting my friends there, thinking a lot about it. I was in love with both of those cities and wanted to move there right away. But I am a very cautious person. I am not impulsive at all, especially about big decisions like that. And so I wanted to make sure I kind of had it all laid out and that I was in a good situation financially. So I was planning that this would be something that would happen in a year or two, right? And here was the key thing. I said I was working at this company for 10 years, but really at this moment that I was starting to think about this, I had been working for this company for nine years and 10 months. I knew in two months, which was the end of the summer, actually on my birthday, I was going to hit my 10-year mark, which would make me eligible for a special 10-year bonus that I was like, okay, this is going to be something I can put in the bank and I can use to move and it will open up my options. I also knew that the company I work for didn't pay out those bonuses until the end of the year, the end of the fiscal year. So we were looking at like next January, February when I would get that money. That was a long time off and I was okay with that. Like I wasn't in a rush. I wanted to make this this move, this change, when it was the right time. And I wasn't even saying like, oh, the moment I get that check, I'm gonna move. But it was just, it was gonna help me figure things out the next year, right? So I put a post on Facebook, remember Facebook? (laughs) And mind you, this is my private life, right? This has nothing to do with work. And I said, you know, I'm really in love with California. I feel like a move there is in my future, We'd love to some t- talk to some people who've made that kind of move, like, how did you find housing? Where did you look for jobs? Where's a good place to live? I just don't even know where to begin. Once again, this was on Facebook in my personal life. And I said, in no way, I'm moving to California this year. I'm moving there next week. I'm moving at all, period. Just that I had been thinking about it. Well, someone who worked in that store, who, and I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to name his here, but I, I know who it was because this person really wanted my job really badly, they printed it out. They printed out a copy of Facebook. Yes, they did. And they sent it to the district manager and the district visual manager. And they came into the store unexpected and they were being really weird. And they dragged me in the office, slammed the door, slammed this down on the desk and were like, you're writing out your resignation letter right now now, I'm an adult. Why am I writing out my resignation letter under duress like this? It is clearly not legal. Well, I'm going to tell you in that moment, I didn't think that at all. I was really freaked out. I was frightened for one because someone had been prying into my personal life and was now threatening me. I was thinking, how am I going to take care of my myself and my daughter after this? And I was just really blindsided and upset and frightened and All all the bad feelings, right? That feeling when your heart is pounding and you can feel that your face is red and hot, that's where I was. And so I sat down there under duress and wrote out my notice, my resignation letter, saying that I would leave this job at the end of the summer, two months away. Now, this was terrifying. And I was like, I wasn't planning on moving. I have nothing in place. I haven't even started looking for a job. And it was a rough A few months where I was like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I couldn't sleep at night. Well, something kind of miraculous happened in that I got a new job, a significantly better job, a job that moved me, like literally paid to move me to LA. And it was kind of one of the best things that had ever happened to me. And for that reason, I never pursued anything like legally with what had happened to me that day in that office, they kind of got off lucky, right? Because if I hadn't gotten that job, I most certainly, I'd already talked to a lawyer, was going to be taking them to court because for one, I was going to need some unemployment and I was going to need some other money to you know, cover, me, cover me while I wasn't working. Lucky for them, I got another job. Now, in retrospect, based on a conversation I had with one of those people who forced me to write that letter. About a year later, they were drunk and reached out to me and apologized. Basically, they had not wanted to give me that 10-year bonus, that it was going to cut into their budget. He didn't say that exactly, but it was very deeply implied and that he was remorseful for doing to me what he had to do. That doesn't mean it's okay. If I could go back in time... I would have taken this to court anyway. Like, I'm regretful because that's not okay. And I feel like in a lot of situations, not even just with retail workers, but frequently with retail workers, there was this assumption that their employees do not know better, do not know their rights, and therefore can be pushed into anything. And it is with a certain sense of shame that is fortunately eclipsed by a sense of rage that I look back on this, you know? So what's my takeaway from this? You know, I'm smart. I'm a professional. I had certainly been working for quite a while when this happened to me. And I'm not a lawyer, but I do have some concept of what is illegal. And yet in that moment, I signed my rights away. And this could happen to any of us. It's why we sign an NDA or an arbitration agreement so we can keep working. It's why we sign a severance agreement because we don't know what job will come next, especially in the past year. And we need every cent we can get to keep going. It's not okay. And no one should be in these positions. And fighting for the rights of workers is going to be my biggest focus for 2021. All right. Well, next we're going to talk to my friend Jem, a familiar voice to all of you, about something that is both lighter and heavier, (laughs) an episode from season seven of The Simpsons where Marge finds a Chanel suit at the outlet store. I don't want to ruin the surprise of all the things that are going to come up in this conversation, so let's just get into it. Do you want to introduce yourself since you're a recurring guest here? I shall. Um, And I should mention that
3: as part of my refresh for the year 2021, I've dropped most of the letters in my name. (laughs) It's just easier. It's easier for me um, to just use the letter G or if anybody prefers. Um, I've been trying to make my initials happen since I was like 11 in my initials <laughs> nobody's ever really taken the bait, which has always been a disappointment to me but um, my initials are Gem
1: G-E-M and
3: so um, yeah I'm kind of just on this roll now in 2021 where I'm like you can call me G or if you would like you can call me Gem but I just I always kind of found my name a little a little too many syllables and actually when I was watching this um, this episode of the Simpsons when they have all of the like country club women <laughs> they come and they introduce them all. And their names are all, like, Roberta. <laughs> and this totally one, and her name is, like, Gillian. And I was just like, ooh. <laughs> it's awful. It's like, oh, I'm Gillian and Felicity, and, like, I ride a horse, you know, everywhere. And it's just like, yeah, it's always felt like kind of a fussy name that I don't really, like, jive with. So I was just like, you know, I'm just going to, like cut out the middleman and just use some initials and see what happens. <laughs> so that's me. But uh but your listeners may remember me from,
2: you know, like the brunch diatribe of twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, totally. Who can forget? People still message me all the time about how that's one of their favorite series that we've had so oh, far. So, no, I know you're you're kind of them. you're you're an all star here at Close Horse. So you reached out to me a while back about talking about what we're going to talk about right now, which is an episode of The Simpsons that, you know, I remember seeing it the first time it was on. I've seen it a couple times since then. And I will tell you that my views of this episode have changed so much over time, much like my views of life, right? (laughs) Uh,
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that especially, I I didn't mean to cut you off, but particularly the probably like first. Even maybe like first eight to ten seasons of The Simpsons, like there was definitely a point in there where it kind of like crossed over into this like dark side of the sort of almost like Family Guy like constant madcap slapstick. Yeah, agree. Sort of
2: agree. Which
3: I struggle with and I don't really enjoy. But like when I think about earlier episodes, like definitely because they were on in syndication for so much of kind of like my teen years, so you could easily be like consuming, you know, a rerun of The Simpsons, perhaps, you know, two to four times in an evening. <laughs> like, yeah. If you, you know, got home and made your little um, miniature bagel pizzas just at the right
2: time and settled in front of the boob tube. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, isn't it crazy that they still make new episodes of The Simpsons? Like, wild.
4: It's, it's wild. It's
3: wild neat. Well, and the other crazy thing, though, is that prior to The Simpsons, I think the longest-running show had been The Flintstones, Um, which I grew
2: up watching reruns of. They were constantly on television.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I remember there was a day once where my brother and I just kind of out of nowhere were like, have you ever noticed that like before dad's hair went white, he looked a lot like Fred Flintstone. And we both were like, yeah. Yeah. We've both been thinking about that. I'm glad we shared that with each other. (laughs) Wow.
2: Wow. So, so yeah. So we're going to talk about an episode of the Simpsons and, Ostensibly, the plot of it is that Marge finds a Chanel suit at a discount store. At
3: the outlet store. At the outlet store, yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, she wears it all the time. We're going to talk about this more. I'm going to start by saying that, like, when you initially brought up talking about this episode, I was really excited because I was like, this is a really great example of someone trying to be a hashtag proud outfit repeater and sort of getting mm-hmm. foiled by classism, but it's so much more than that, even, like, upon so yet more. another viewing. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. so she runs into some wealthy people from high school who never really paid attention to her, and they see her in the Chanel suit, and suddenly they think she is also a woman of means, and so mm-hmm. she gets invited to hang out with them. Well, the only, like, fancy clothing she has is the Chanel suit, which she keeps wearing, Ultimately, she tries to turn it into an evening gown. It's a disaster. There's a point as well when um, she just keeps
3: doing these alterations on the on it. And there's one stage where she shows up at the country club, and it's been um, transformed into like a little vest and culottes. Oh yes,
2: yes, for golfing. Yes. yes, yes. One of the women
3: says I mean, I just watched it like 20 minutes ago. So one of the women says. <laughs> Oh, Marge, I love your outfit. The vest says "Let's have lunch," but the culottes say "You're
2: paying." <laughs> <laughs> God, I I do love a culotte, man. Telling you, mm. I love a culotte. So. In the kind of, like, the peak of the episode, she realizes that she cannot turn this Chanel suit, which, I mean, the symbolism here is so deep beyond, like, mm. what is a Chanel suit, right? Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But she turns it into an evening gown, but it unravels, basically. This this fabric of this suit has been beaten into the ground with so many, you know, transformations during this episode. Well, so actually, she-
3: it's so dramatic because what happens is she has it and she's pulling it up out of the sewing machine, and she's she's got it. It's done. And then as she's doing it, her foot steps on the sewing machine. Oh, and it right just goes back in, and it just gets, like, completely chewed up in yes. the sewing machine. Yes, is- It's brutal. It's so – it's, like, really hard it's to watch. Least- even though she's a cartoon, you're just like, oh, Marge.
2: I know. I found myself, like – like I said, my – the way I have reacted to a lot of Simpsons episodes or felt about them over the years has changed. And mm-hmm. this one, this whole episode to me, like it hurt my heart. Like it really, oh, yeah. really got to me. So she has no dress now. She goes to Chanel, buys an evening gown and keeps the tag on. I mean, there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens, but like mm-hmm. the moment she went to the store, I think i had forgotten about that. And that just really, I was filled with this sense of terror because I mean, having worked in the industry and constantly being surrounded by people who are of a much more affluent background than me, mm. uh, I I knew this pain. Like this episode yeah. really, really got me. And well, so let's let's start the name of this episode. I never know the names of Simpsons episodes when I look well, them up. Well, What's so funny
3: that, is that they all do have names, and I, I guess you know you don't really think about it. I think all sitcoms, all shows have names for their episodes, but when I was looking um, just really quickly on the internet to find this episode so that I could easily, you know, like ring it up in the um, the viewing service,
2: I that was when I learned the name of it, and I was just like,
3: whoa, oh, that's so dark.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, here, why don't you tell everyone the name?
3: The name of this episode is Scenes from the Class Struggle in, in Springfield.
2: I mean, that. That nails it, right? And, uh, yeah, well, it really it, doesn't leave anything out. <laughs> I did some reading about this episode, and it was the first time that a female writer and director were credited in the same episode. Amazing. I never but, knew that. I do think, you know, re watching this episode yet again, that it has this different feeling than a lot of the other ones, even of that era. Because this is season seven. When it's like, I don't know, perhaps. Simpsons has sort of passed its peak or is getting there. Like it's rapidly approaching. Uh, mm. And so this one to me is like a real standout, but it also not just because for a change of pace, Marge is the main character. It mm-hmm. it just has a different energy to it. Mm-hmm. I felt a lot more personally connected with this one than I have with others. You know, I think Marge is always there to be the moral compass, the voice of reason. There are oftentimes you sort of view her as this almost like innocent victim of Homer's. Terribleness. The but, this, yeah, and this but this one was like, we, you know, I guess we just don't get that often. We don't that often go into what's happening in Marge's head. Well, and, and I think what's really interesting in there.
3: about Marge though, is that I don't think this, this episode occurs in a vacuum because when I think about my extensive viewing, certainly of like the earlier part of the Simpsons back catalog, Marge is a really, um, I think she's really fascinating because when you go all the way to the um the flashback episode from like one of the early seasons of how Marge and Homer meet in high school, Marge actually is like a little bit of like a proto Lisa Simpson before she marries Homer where she's on the debate team, you know, and like she's like really you know she she's very involved and um and switched on and intelligent. And I mean, she always is. And she kind of maintains that throughout, but as you say, it is a little bit more of this like straight man to Homer who's out there, you know, kind of like drifting around and, and kind of stealing the show and like making all this chaos everywhere. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: And I think it's like, it's, it's interesting even like her interior, um, kind of arc within this episode because when it begins, like the um precipitating factor for their going to the outlets in Ogdenville is that they're all sitting around watching the Bumblebee Man on the Spanish tele- television and then Abe Simpson, the grandpa, is like, Oh well I gotta get this transistor here and there and, and he starts like fiddling with the aerial and basically like the TV just like explodes. And so they drop him off at the old folks home and peel out. And then everybody in the car cheers, hooray, we're getting a new TV. (laughs) Which like, that in and of itself is like, I I think – still, like, as relevant as ever, that kind of, <laughs> you know, that, like, oh, when life hands you a lemon, just go buy something, and like, you know, and yeah. then it right no, it's for a minute. True. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, like, beyond that, there's, um, then Bard is like, let's go to the Shark image They've got a TV shaped, like, a 50s diner, and Lisa's like, oh, let's go to the nature company. They've got a TV assembled by Hopi Indians. <laughs> <And> <laughs> to which Marge replies, we can't afford to shop in any store with a philosophy, which, like, <laughs> I mean, as relevant today as when it was written, really, because that's, you know, essentially what you talk about all the time when you talk about these companies with greenwashing and this sort of, like, oh, feel-good propaganda of, like, yeah. whatever, organic, this and that. Um, so basically they're like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to do what, you know, what people do when they just need a TV so they go to Ogdenville and they they have this kind of like little um bridge Portion where they're driving past all these signs, and it's like, oh, Japanese internment camps, you know, 90 miles, and like a tumbleweed blows by, and then they're like, Ogdenville, 270. You know, it's just like they're like going on this complete, like, <laughs> quest to get to this outlet mall. And when they arrive, they're like, Homer's in the electronics store, and the salesman comes up, and he's like, oh, you know, like we've got Magnet Vox and Sorny and all the big names. You know? <laughs> And then Lisa and Marge are over and it's called, you know, like fashion fancy or whatever. As they're looking at the clothes, Lisa says to Marge, she's like, I don't think these clothes are us. And then she's like, oh, who are they? And then bless them, Cletus, the slack yokel and Brandine, his lady love are there. And he's like flashing her this um like bedazzled shirt with fringe on the bottom that says like classy lady. And he's like, hey, Brandine, you could wear this t- shirt to work. And Brandine's like, oh, Cletus, you know I gotta wear the shirt Dairy Queen gives me. <laughs> and so like, again, there's like that undercut, that subtle jab at, you know, the, the poor people. Like, oh, look at these poor people. They have no taste. Like they're finding uh. all this stuff that's like, and later there's like, she has to go back to the outlet store. And she's, like, this is after she's um, just, like, completely uh, sunk the Chanel dress in the sewing machine. She goes back and she's, like, frantically trying to find something else at the store that she can, you know, kind of wear instead to this big, um, you know, gala at the country club. And she's saying to the saleswoman, she's like, oh, you know, do you have any, like, premium brands or anything? And she's like, well, we do have some... Slightly scorched out, you know, athletic wear coming in from Sears at like 4pm and then Cletus like rushes over and he's like, what time and how scores? You know, like it's just like it's just really bleak. You know they're like they're they're playing that they're they're playing that card pretty heavily. They're like ha ha ha. Like look at the people who like enjoy shopping at outlet stores. Like aren't they just you know undesirable? And you're like, well, I mean,
2: I know, and that that bugs me, of course. Like once again, like me rewatching this again, I'm like, oh, I have so many problems with this. I also. The The core of the story is so good, but, like, things like mm-hmm. that, it just reinforces that idea that poor people have bad taste, you know, and they like bad things, and they don't care if the clothes are scorched or whatever, and, like, that's the best they can hope for, and they're tacky, well, and all of and that. It also, it also, like, really
3: underscores this whole sort of backbone of The Simpsons as they are, like, the kind of... The the everyman like quote unquote middle class demographic, which I think is another really interesting thing about watching The Simpsons from the time it began in the late 1980s through until today, because I would argue that the like Homer Simpson lifestyle is is kind of like a fantasy. This
1: Um, This
3: idea of this, like, you know, blue-collar guy who, like, can afford a house and has the 2.5 kids and the, the car and everything. But, like, that's part of the allure of the myth of the middle class is like oh well you know there's some people who've got more than we have but there's always someone we can look down on you know at least we're not which is like is is a big part of that whole um kind of construction in our culture I think where you're like you're always like could be better we're working at that could be worse at least we're not you know like Oogling the slightly scorched athletic wear, God forbid.
2: <laughs> I mean, and I will say, like, I grew up in that kind of environment where we definitely, mm. I mean, I remember asking my mom, are we lower class or middle class? And she said to me, we're lower middle class. Mm. And I was like, no, I, I think we're lower class, actually. Like, yeah. you know, I was, I'm like, yeah, we were definitely lower class, but there was this denial that, like, there's no way we are in the lower class. But I look back and I'm like, ah, well, we didn't have heat a lot of the time, and we drank a lot of powdered milk, and we bought our groceries at the the outlet of of groceries where everything mm-hmm. was dented or scorched. I mm-hmm. think that really, you know, looking back now, my family was more Cletus and his family than we were the Simpsons. We know that the Simpsons mm-hmm. were living this mirage anyway because there's no way their situation could have existed. But had we been able to move into a house the size of the Simpsons, we would have felt that we were rich. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I, totally I I hate that Cletus and his family are this like I don't know, it's like they're just the butt of every joke. They're the butt of every joke because they're poor and they live in a rural area. And I find I mean, like I will tell you more and more often on social media, whether it's like Instagram or Twitter, I think Facebook is a shithole, so I barely spend any time there. But, like, Mm -hmm. I see people who are liberals, whose overarching, uh, you know, like, positions on politics and social justice are exactly in line with the kinds of things that you and I believe. But Mm -hmm. then they'll be like, they'll post a photo of someone from, like, the insurrection with bad teeth and they'll be like, insert banjo music here. And I'm like, fuck you. Oh, for real. That should not be a luxury. It is an extreme luxury. Let me tell you, you know? Oh man. Like totally. that kind of shit I fucking hate. Cause I'm like, tell me, do you think you're rich? Cause guess what? You're not. Like that's the thing is like, there's yeah. so much, like I think it goes back to what you're saying that there's, we can always feel better by looking at someone who's even worse off than we are. And I feel like this kind of thing encourages that. And I, I know the Simpsons did all kinds of really stupid shit. You know, don't get me started mm-hmm. on Apu and his family and the accents. Oh, and, and, yeah, and there's, even, like,
3: there's even a little like Apu moment
2: in this episode, if
3: you'll allow me to sidebar it. Um, when, marge has the chanel suit and she goes into the quickie mart um apu sees her and he's like oh you know mrs simpson you're looking very prosperous today might i interest you in one of these wiggle pens or like some other sort of like impulse buy up here at the register and he's talking to her you know and he's up who and he's just like telling her telling her about stuff and then the um the country club lady i think her name is like evelyn comes in and she's like, excuse me, clerk, like, I need help with the pump. And Apu starts just like pretending he doesn't speak English and being like, oh no, I'm sorry, madam, oh no, no, no smart. uh, uh,
2: squishy, you know. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I don't blame you. That woman sucks. I mean, like, The Simpsons are not perfect, and we're in no way talking about this episode as, like, some incredible documentation of the human existence, although I guess to a certain extent it does accidentally, perhaps, point out a lot of well, things that we do wrong. I think this per- this particular episode, like some of the other, like,
3: favorite episodes I have of The Simpsons, I feel like it, it kind of is, like, a nicely polished little... Um, jewel of truth about life. Like, I think that at its best, there are these episodes of The Simpsons where, like, ultimately, like, the bones of the story are very good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's, like, some extra sort of, like, tumors and protuberances and things and like a little fat here and there on the story that like you could live with or trim, you know, as you see fit. But like <laughs> <I> mean, essentially, <laughs> essentially it's like, it's it's you know, you do a little like um, selective butchery and what you end up with is like this, you know, sort of basic shape of the story that I think is pretty universal. And it does say a lot about capitalism and the way that our feelings and our aspirations and everything get so hijacked and mixed up in consumerism like when I when I was watching this episode it also brings up something which I don't know if you experienced much of when you were younger but I definitely um like I would say we were probably somewhere around the middle class and like depending it was weird because we lived in two different places and I think depending on where we lived we kind of felt a little you know like relatively more prosperous than another place because of the way that this country is and like certain areas are just like wealthier (laughs) areas and so when you move there suddenly you're like oh my house is smaller than it used to be yeah yeah that kind of thing um but a big feature of growing up is that primarily I would say um it's weird like thinking about it because I was was watching the series I was telling you about um earlier before we started recording where there was a part where one of the parents was talking about their kids getting, like, all of the um, the luxury brands and everything like that. And I don't know if it's just the kind of kid I was, but I wasn't, like, I didn't have an awareness of that as, like, a social cachet as a kid. Like, I wasn't, even though there were definitely things, like, in the 90s where, you know, it's like, ooh, you know, like, everyone's got to have this or that or, like, Abercrombie and Fitch. I think partly by the time Abercrombie and Fitch came along, I was like, that those clothes aren't, like, what I want to wear, so I don't care. Like, I'm not... You know, really fussed about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I do remember that, like, the big occasions, shopping-wise, would be when we would go to a place like, um, for instance, like a Filene's Basement, which is, I think, a good analog for, like, what happens to Marge in the show. Because mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Filene's Basement is all over the place. You know, there's, like, you can, like, reach out and pull something off a rack, and it'll be, you know, like, like I think in the show she finds the dress, uh, or she finds the suit and it's $90 marked down from, like, 2800 and that's kind of what Finally's Basement was all about, where mm-hmm, you'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh. And, and there's also this, like, weird sort of treasure-hunting feel that you get in thrifting, which, like, that rush of, like, oh, my gosh, like, I'll never get a deal like this again on, like, something from whatever, you know, like, um, Rag & Bone or Betsy Johnson or, like, any of these kinds of things, <laughs> like, that I was seeing in, like, the early 2000s. Uh-huh. And I can remember there was, like, this whole sort of, like, weird energy that would come on between me and my mother where it was this sort of like well this is just so special we've just got to do it and like yeah and it was like this weird um like emotional like really short lived high of like this sort of like thrill of like bagging this item and (laughs) then i almost never wore any of that stuff like when i think back on it i'm like what was it that was really going on there because it wasn't like a true experience of me finding a garment that I actually knew that I liked and wanted to wear. It was like all this other shit
2: going on. That like- totally. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is like bringing back so many memories for me of, of that kind of like, we had in our near our town for just a few months, a Macy's outlet popped up mm-hmm. like in an, an abandoned department store and this was when, like, Macy's was, like, fancy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it was like Nordstrom is now, right? And everything that was in that outlet store, which I now see as a person who's worked in this industry, was there for a reason. Mostly because it mm-hmm. was too ridiculous to sell. You know, like... Well, and that, yeah, that was exactly
3: the kind of stuff I'd be trying. I'd be trying on some kind of, like, uh, you know, like, a dress that looked like something that, like... um Jane Justin would wear.
1: (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It
3: would be like, wow, she'd say these things. Like to me because my poor adolescent brain was so addled by like looking at fashion magazines because this was like kind of before the internet. You know, she'd be like, "Oh, this is like something that like usually only models in runway shows wear," and I would be like, oh, <laughs> "I want to be a model in a runway show. I want to be you know, yeah, dude. And, you know, I, and, like, I I hear you. And know. Have that life."
2: <laughs> I remember specifically at this outlet getting a full cause, like. My mom would not indulge this stuff, but my grandma would, uh-huh. and. I specifically got this outfit that I think I only wore one time ever, which Mm -hmm. was white jeans that had like rhinestones on the pockets or something. And then Mm -hmm. a matching, this is so foolish. Go on. (laughs) I know. Short sleeve, white denim jacket. It was like a part of a set with some sort of coordinating embellishment. And then there was a shirt to wear underneath and mm-hmm. it specifically was designed to roll up into this jacket. Like it was like the sleeves. It was just, no, you know what? No one who's like 12 needs a head to toe white look. Let's be real.
1: You no. know, This is so absurd.
2: I <laughs> and mean, especially, brand. especially not after Labor Day. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know exactly how mortifying. And it was definitely like, some sort of brand that I would have deemed, like, so fancy, which I think is why I really wanted it.
3: That's what I remember, too, is, like, finding shit and being like, I don't even care that, like, this shirt makes my shoulders look like linebackers,
2: like, <laughs> totally pressed into sausage tubes because it's got this label in it. Like, who the fuck cares? I know. I know. <laughs> and you kind of have to, like, divorce yourself from that, and it's really hard, especially when you've been, like, hearing all your life that these are the things you're supposed to aspire to. What happens to,
3: like, as we were saying, this sort of your grandma or my mom, that sort of, like, person who is, like, sort of expressing love by encouraging you to buy something, I like, I think for me that gets to, like, a deeper nugget of a problem that I think is maybe personal or, like, part of my personality, where when I think about what was really going on there, it's, like, what I wanted was for someone to tell me Like you're, you're worth it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, I think that the buying of the object almost ruined the experience of someone like seeing me and saying, like, you, you can pull that off. Like, if you want to, not like, oh, now you should own this thing to like remind you of this moment when like you tried something on that, like, you kind of knew you'd never find a place to wear it to.
2: So, well. Unfortunately, Marge in this episode doesn't have someone to say, like, listen, you look incredible. You are worthy of this suit. Let's put it back now. She buys it. Lisa Lisa kind of is, like, the one
3: saying, go for it. Like, you never get anything for yourself. Like, so she's sort of that little voice that, like, we're talking about, like, your grandma or someone being like, you know what? Like, sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which, I mean – I think it's really cute, and it's because she loves her mom so much, you know, and it's, like, it's heartwarming, but it's also, like, oh, uh, Lisa, like, I feel like you, too, have been socialized to believe that this is, like, how you, sh- that like, prove your worthiness to the world is by, like, buying things. But anyway. Well, there's also a button on the scene, which I think you'll appreciate. It's, like, after
3: Marge just decides she's going to go for it, she goes, besides, it'll be good for the economy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like could not be more relevant, could not be right. more
2: relevant, I know like we we consumers are so important, uh, and so she buys the suit, and she doesn't have anywhere to wear it, like yes, yeah, so she just wears it to the gas station, that's where she's wearing it at, yes. Our <laughs> yes. and that is how she runs into Evelyn from high school, someone who mm-hmm. like treated her like she did not exist because. She is what I think we, you know, the old timers used to call a snob. I haven't well, heard that this- word in a long time. It's so funny. <laughs> there's,
3: a great, um, there's a great little one-liner there, too. Cause, I mean, The Simpsons, it is like chock-a-block with zingers. They're just like right, left, and center in this episode. And so when Marge is there demonstrating to this woman how to pump the gas, this woman is like, oh, Marge, like you have style and automotive skills. You've changed so much from the girl I knew nothing about in high school. Yes! yes. And then Marge does something that I think is just like very on brand for clothes doors where she's like, well, I mean, we ran with different crowds. You had your debutante balls and skinny dipping and I had my home shoe repair
2: course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's it's very on brand for us <laughs> and I was like I mean there we
3: all are we're like how do I get another you know <laughs> two thousand miles out of these souls <laughs> how can I get the insole that's going to stop me from getting blistered
2: I mean Marge is our kind of gal you know she like, certainly is yeah she's, she's one of us and so it's this is the part where you start to feel I don't know, this just sadness that is so relatable of being, like, the people who never thought I was worthy before now think I am because I'm wearing this Mm -hmm. Chanel suit. I got to go with this. Like, even though I know that Marge is very intelligent, a woman of the world, an experienced and wise woman, and so she knows that if she weren't wearing that suit, that person wouldn't even talk to her you know probably would have just wouldn't even recognized her, yeah yeah, and would have asked her to pump the gas for her, like mm-hmm. assume she was an employee, which by the way, happens to me all the time if I I mean mm-hmm. it doesn't happen as much right now in the pandemic because I don't go very many places, but there's something about me, and I can I can assume it's my lower class background just like dripping out of my pores everywhere I go, where no matter where I am and what I'm wearing, someone asks me if I work there.
3: Oh, well, I like to believe it's because you just have an air of being knowledgeable about you.
2: <laughs> like, one time I was at Target, and three different people asked me if I worked there. And, you know, at, at Target, I used to wear, like, a red shirt and pants or and something. A, and a badge. Was, yeah, yeah, and I'm pretty sure I was wearing, like, a black, flowy dress and probably a big hat. I mean, that sounds pretty typical for it me. Sounds and, like something you would be wearing, yeah. Yeah, and people kept asking me if I worked there, and I was like, what? What? Why? I have a cart. <laughs> 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 anyway, anyway, uh, so there's this part of you that wants to be like, Marge, fuck those people. You know what instead you should do is you should go put on that suit and go down to, like, the state capitol and start, like, talking to your state representative about, like, all of the issues in this world around, like, you know, expanding the minimum wage or accessible health care, all these other things. But instead... Affordable
3: child care. Yeah, exactly. Do these are all You're things that
2: affect care. you, Marge, okay? You're feeling the crunch, there's no way your husband actually has a job at a nuclear power plant, I hope. And so you wish that she would instead be like, this is the end of the episode, basically. It's just, or it takes a dramatic left turn where she's, like, you know, suddenly really involved in po- politics and becomes, like, a city councilwoman or something. But instead, she decides that she's going to – she really needs this, like, acceptance – from these women who have snubbed her whole, her whole life, right?
3: Well, and what's funny too is that actually prior to going to the Quickie mart, there's this little scene where she puts on the suit and kind of like does a little turn. On the catwalk in the living room to show off for Homer. And Homer's like, wow, you know, you look really great, honey. And so then she's like, oh, well, maybe we could go somewhere. Like, perhaps, like, we could, I could wear this to the symphony or something or other. And as soon as she says that, Homer just like glazes over and he's like, what's the point of going out? We just end up back home.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do get that sentiment. I frequently feel that way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but, but I do
3: think it, like, it, it kind of gives you, like, a little bit of an inkling as to why Marge is seeking this this outside approval, because Homer does tend to be, like, a bit of a numbing nut in terms of, like, clinical recognizing... <Yeah>. Yeah, that's the term in the, uh, whatever the thing is, the, um, designation of recognized, um, mental disorder.
2: <laughs> numb nut.
3: <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's been, uh, it's, it's his diagnosis. He's a numb And so he, um, yeah, so like he's sort of there, like he gets it, but like he's not getting what she needs somebody to get about it. Uh-huh. In order to feel like that that level of of being seen, which is like a massive part of why everybody does everything all the time, is like yeah, you yeah. long for someone, particularly you know, like ideally your love that you spend all your time with, to like look at you with their eyes open and recognize like that something special is happening for you, and to kind of share in that to the best of their ability. So Homer sort of falls short of the mark in that. As he often does on this show. Yes, often. Yeah, and so, but it's true. So, like, she meets this woman, and then, you know, this woman decides that due to, like, on on the full strength of the head of scene that has been granted to Marge by this Chanel suit, she's invited to the country club, you know, for the day to, like, you know, mingle with the hoi polloi. And they they have a conversation that really could be just, like, with a couple of alterations, just, you know, ripped from any any text thread today and then, you know, an affluent enclave where the one woman is like, Oh, well, I get all my food mail order. I don't eat anything that isn't shipped overnight from Vermont or Washington state. (laughs) Imagine. And then this other woman says, we get our steaks from the New Yorker. (laughs) And then large, bless her, in, like, pure clothes horse, like, deep stripes, is like, well, I get recipes in the mail every month, too, in a different way. Or, like, I get food in the mail a different way. Every month, like, the recipe, you know, magazine shows up, and then I get to make all my own meals, and they all kind of, like, the the, the room goes blank. (laughs) (laughs) It just goes down like a lead balloon, and then one of the women is like... You know, once Biff and I came home and we didn't want to wake up Iris, so we microwaved our own soup.
2: (laughs) Imagine. I know.
3: Really letting their hair down.
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Seeing how the other half lives. And then, like, another feature of the country club um, sort of coven that she – encounters is there's this woman named Susan who sort of does look like a sort of feminized New Yorker face guy where she's like always got a glass of wine in her hand and sort of this nose that's like tipped up and she's looking down it and she's the one who's always making these like really scathing comments towards Marge and she's the one who's like Oh, like you know, where will you be attaching these bells to that mangled Chanel suit? Like she's the one who's always like pointing mm-hmm. out that she doesn't have more than one outfit.
2: Yeah, so it's what what Dylan calls a bench. A bench, I like that. <laughs> we see that these women are rich and terrible, right? But mm-hmm. yet, still, she wants to be a part of this so badly. Yeah, no. she's
3: making she's making the whole family come along, too, and I think that's kind of where you really start to see, like, the emotional fallout in this episode is that even from the first time they go to the country club, she's, like, telling Bart that he can't grift and um Lisa that – because Lisa's like, oh, I want to ask everyone at the country club if they know their servants' last names and in the case of butlers, their first names, and Marge is just like, oh, no – No, like, none of that. You know, you guys are just, like, really cramping my style. And then there's also this this subplot where Homer starts getting involved in golf. So it's, like, Lisa sees the pony, and she's off, like, on the pony. She's riding ponies around at the country club. Homer's getting into golf. um, And there's even this little, like, undertow where you keep seeing Krusty the Clown out golfing and then at a certain point Homer like throws a golf club and hits him in the head and then someone steps on him and like leaves a cleat mark and Krusty's like, I knew my kind weren't welcome here. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little bit of everything. It's a real potpourri. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole subplot that's not very important except for that it, you know, I guess like reiterates that maybe rich people are terrible, which is that uh, Mr. Burns is cheating at golf, but doesn't know. Yeah. You know, exactly
3: because it's all, um, Smithers is, is just doing it
2: on his behalf. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I would love to get Smithers some therapy because Um, I feel like, you know, Waylon, you need to love yourself before someone else can love you and you deserve better. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's, you see, as an adult, it's almost painful for me to watch, watch Smithers. Smithers. (laughs)
3: Like, Malibu Stacy is not going to keep you warm at night. Yeah,
2: yeah. I feel like, you know, I see so much of myself in Smithers, Mm. and and I see myself as him in some relationships that I've had. And Oh, 100%. It's very (laughs) – it's hard to see the Smithers-shaped
3: mirror held up. I know. But – oh, but part of what happens in this episode, to kind of get to the end of the story, is – so she keeps altering the suit. It becomes clear that they're having, like, a um, a party at the country club to let them know whether or not, you know, like, their bid to join has been accepted. And they're kind of at this point pointedly saying to Marge, like, we sh- we can't wait to see what kind of new thing you wear to this party. And so that's when you get into the part where she has just about cracked turning this suit into a new dress and then she steps on the sewing machine pedal and it's all goes, Uh. it all goes to shit. So then, like I said, she goes to Ogdenville. She's unable to find anything. And as you were saying, she ends up at the actual Chanel store. And so she gets this gown, which again, you, you really like, well, you, you explained really well that kind of that, that sense of like, I feel like it's like the first step you take into like, accepting that in order to keep up with the Joneses, you have to go into debt, which is so real.
2: <laughs> so real. Yeah, yeah. Man. Um, and that is, like, the subtext of everything that has happened in the United States for decades and uh-huh. around the world, yeah. but just, like, specifically here. Totally. I yeah. know. And, yeah, and so, uh, and that's, like, yeah,
3: that is kind of, like, a, a leap in towards the dark side. And but what happens... At the end, when they, they're they on their way to the country club and everyone's kind of, you know, the regular, the, the, the members of the family are all just being themselves. And Marge just swings around and snaps at all of them and, like, basically tells them to, like, shut up and behave.
2: Yeah. And yeah.
3: then Homer is like, oh, kids, like, you should be grateful. You know, your mom is, like, a better person now and she's showing us all how awful we are. <laughs> at that yeah. point... She decides, you know what, fuck it. Like, this isn't worth it. I like I like you guys. I'm going to come back over and I mean, be with my family and give up on this country club dream. And then she tells them that the dress isn't really – because at first she's, like, just making up some, some stuff. And Lisa's like, wow, where did you get that dress? And she's like, oh, it was a dollar. I found it at the outlet store. You know, like, uh, I got it in the car. And um, so then she admits, like, oh, I have to go return this dress. Like, I, I blew our savings on it. And everybody gasps. And then she's like, oh, don't worry. We're going to have a $3,300 credit at the Chanel store. <laughs>
1: oh, Which God. is weird, does it all,
3: because I feel like that's exactly the case. Is like in those sort of situations, you never get your fucking money back. You always end up with a fucking stupid store credit. Yeah, don't started on fucking oh, store God. credit. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, like I said, when you first brought up talking about this episode, I was like, oh, you know what? I love that idea because it's like, it's like, you know, a proud outfit repeater in action, right? Cause like she mm-hmm. wears the suit constantly. She turns it into other things. Then I watched this episode again and I was like, okay, wait, actually, I mean, that is part of it. But like the idea of the label in our clothes indicating our worthiness is a really dangerous road. Or I guess it's a dangerous path to follow, right? But, oh, yeah, it's a really fucked up precedent To it really it really is. I remember the closest thing I can say in my life that I've had ex- this experience with was uh you know when I was in middle school and late elementary school, well, I would say middle school, a was a really popular mm-hmm. brand, and you know, I'd always been really into clothes, and my grandma would like get things made for me or take me shopping. And I had my own like really unique sense of style in terms of what mm-hmm. I liked. And like, for example, for six months straight, I wore a sailor hat every day because I just like loved it. And yeah,
3: when, when I was a kid, I yeah. used to wear um, like a bomber jacket and an aviator cap like every day. Exactly. Was, like, exactly. you <laughs> felt,
2: felt cool. Right. And oh my gosh, I felt, I felt like my most complete self. Yeah, exactly. Really exactly. And so I, uh, <laughs> Got to junior high, you know, and I show up probably in my sailor cap and some other weird clothes. I really like to wear. I was like a very tiny person. I couldn't wear a grown-up size clothes until I was in high school, but I would wear my grandpa's dress shirts as dresses all the time. And my grandma would like, you know, roll up the sleeves and maybe we'd like. Have oh, that's a or something. so cute. Especially diamond, like right? At, yeah,
3: especially at like because that would have been what like early nineties, basically. And yeah, so yeah. That actually was like a pretty like fashion forward aesthetic to have it, like leggings and a big oversized man shirt and like perhaps a belt
2: (laughs) no totally i mean i look back now and i was like wow i was a really stylish person and i think it was just Mm -hmm. because you know i watched a lot of movies with my grandma i would she would buy me magazines i would read fashion magazines Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things and i just was really into the way people dressed i would sit around even in elementary school and just draw pictures of outfits and think about the people mm-hmm. who are wearing them, what they were like. And uh I get to junior high in all my weird clothes, and immediately people are making fun of me from, like, the first day of school because mm-hmm. this is an era, you know, middle school sucks, right? Oh, yeah. It is all about conformity <laughs> in middle school, and, you know, specifically part of that is, like, there are things that are acceptable to wear and things that are not, and it's very – brand focused. It has nothing to do with aesthetics at all.
0: It has mm. nothing to do
2: with fashion. And so in my junior high school, two things were really popular, a spree and Express. Right. And so mm-hmm. I didn't have clothes from either of those places. And my mom was like, no, we don't, we don't buy designer clothes. You're like 12, you know, and
1: totally.
2: my grandma found a yard sale that was full of a spree clothes that were my size. And wow. So what a she, I know. I know. So she shows up, this is like well into seventh grade when I'm like, I'm just a hopeless loser who can't even get nice clothes. And I'm wearing clothes from, you know, wherever we go shopping from value city or something. And she shows up with this like whole box of a spree clothes that she'd gotten at a yard sale. that were all exactly my size. And let me tell you, the power went to my head immediately. Mm. Like, I went into school head to we're toe, drunk, spree, with power. <laughs> drunk with power, head to toe, a spree, and people were like, ooh, you look really cute and different today. Like, it was like immediately. Wow,
3: like you suddenly became such a desirable person to be around. I know. How and you
2: do it? I mean, this is like so comical to me because Looking back, I'm, I mean, actually, I do look at old Esprit ads from that era, and I'm like, those clothes were really, really cool, actually. Like, mm. had a really unique aesthetic that I still find appealing. But, like, I don't think that's what these girls were thinking who were, like, suddenly interested in sitting with me at lunch.
3: When I think about Esprit, like, when you're saying it is pretty good, I, I feel like it was of its time, but in that more, like, hard-wearing basics sort of early 90s mm-hmm. thing, that kind of that, like, it's the early 90s, and, like, you know, I'm just going to wear my, like, simple white T-shirt and jeans, and, like, that kind of sort of has staying power in that way, like those just, like, very staple, like, the little skirts and things. Like, there was nothing so, like, flared out or overly embellished. Oh, that it, like, not made at it all, all. Yeah.
2: Not at all. And I specifically remember my favorite ensemble from this box of clothes that my grandma brought me. The top was a red and white striped, very, like, nautically sort of base, very French mm-hmm. kind of shirt. Yeah, totally. And, and I specifically always wore it with, I don't know why I'm talking about white clothes again because I don't even wear white now, but these white Esprit culotte shorts. Oh, we're back to culottes. <laughs> I know it's full circle. It was a really, really good outfit. I can see that now, but once again, like when I look at what people at my school were wearing that was a spree, it was a spree sweatshirt. It was like with mm. the logo. It was the tote bag with the logo. yeah with, the logo it was very logo driven. And I don't think people were like wearing a spree because of fashion. You know, it was just like someone somewhere had gone yeah. onto these Esprit sweatshirts. And so, I remember feeling like suddenly I had this like increased sense of self worth now that I had all these esprit clothes, but you know I grew over summer vacation eighth grade. So Those esprit and clothes didn't is fit anymore. anymore. Oh. Yeah, and so I was back to square one of being like this person that was completely rejected by society.
3: <laughs> this kind of reminds me of it's, it's a different story because it's not a success story. In fact, if anything, it's a colossal failure story. Um, but I can remember my first day at a new middle school when my family moved because we moved from the outskirts, um, suburban Detroit, Gross Point, Michigan, where I'd lived pretty much the whole time I grew up. We moved to um like a smallish town outside of Boston that's very, 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 very square. <laughs> Super <laughs> like white fluenza, like it's just crazy. Like it was such a culture shock for me because being, you know, like, near Detroit, like, everybody kind of, like, didn't have, like, crazy – like, it's a gross point is a rich town, but it was sort of, like, the rich side of town. Those kids all kind of went to a private school, and then there were, like, some pretty good public schools. There were a bunch of them. So I went to those, and I can remember because it was, like, 90 – we moved in 1995 – so just prior to that, I was really, like, feeling myself as, like, being super, like, I was, like, very grunge <laughs> as a kid, like, 11, you know. I, like,
1: took mm-hmm.
3: guitar lessons and I had, you know, like, some cutoffs and, like, you know, like, I think I was, like, you know, covetous of the, like, interview with the vampire T-shirts that kids had and, like, you know, so, like, I was definitely, like, more in that kind of vein of things and then, to me, like, the, the kind of, like, height of, like, styles you know like to really like express yourself with style clothing that like came from a place that wasn't the thrift store was Urban Outfitters it was like this big deal and so Mm -hmm. I think it was sort of like we had moved and I was definitely you know like worried about you know like being ready for my first day of school in a new school and like all that kind of like anticipation of like your greatest hopes and dreams are, like, riding on the fact that, like, this whole new school is, like, I can, like, bring myself in there and, like, mm-hmm. everybody will, like, know me and see what I'm all about and, like, <laughs> something great is going to happen. And so I can remember getting to put together my, like, first day of school outfit from Urban Outfitters. And I think, like, pretty much everything came from Urban Out And it was definitely, like, I'm sure it all came from the bargain basement. Like, I'm not sure... I even like was allowed upstairs <laughs> in out there at this point, but it was like I was in the bargain basement. I think around Harvard Square, so I got this like, it was like really, really, really fine whale, um, powder blue corduroy, little like mini dress that had a a circle zipper tab that went all the way from the bottom to the top.
1: Okay, and
3: I can picture I it. I had these little. They were like Mary Janes that were like jimmery kind of, like, baby bubblegum pink nail polish colored with clear soles. Okay. um, I
2: think I want these
3: now. And I don't recall whether I wore the white – I think I might have worn white fishnets. But that was, like, before – Wow. To me was that I would wear that. And then I had some little, like, tiny pink butterfly clips in my, like, disgusting half-permed weird weird length growing out (laughs) hair anyway I felt like I had really like turned myself out to the best of my ability
2: I mean this is like picturing you in this outfit because I've known you for a long time now yeah especially the fishnets they're really like this is so not you as I know you as an adult so I really wish there were some photos of this somewhere <laughs> I
3: think there probably is a picture no I mean I like I was all about like I always like when I was a young child I wanted to become a stripper when I grew up and I was like really into fishnets and like wow I think what happened was like just living in this like square ass dull ass town just like killed so many things inside of me like it killed my desire to express myself through fashion it killed my desire like I had one year of art, my freshman year. And I like did a picture and put it up in the hallway. And like somebody basically like wrote like homophobic slurs all over it. So like the teacher just like sliced the bottom part of the picture off and like gave me the top part of the picture back. And I was just like, I hate art. I'm never doing art again. And, like it was just a very dark time for me. But um so I had this whole outfit on and I can remember like getting to school and it was like Every kid in the school was wearing, like, this sort of, like, dull tone gap. That was everybody. And that basically was, like, the world I lived in for, like, five years. And I was just like, I I just don't know what I'm doing. I just don't know where I'm going if ever from here. This is not preparing <laughs> me for the life that I thought I might have. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do we have anything else you want to say about this episode?
3: I think we've said everything about the episode. I think it's now just devolving into therapy for us.
2: <laughs> well, I would say, I, I mean, I feel like this is worth a watch for everyone, uh, even if you agree you've seen yeah. it more, uh, because I have been thinking about it nonstop. You know, like I can't explain it, but it's just such a good metaphor for so many things that we've been talking about on Clothes Horse lately. Mm-hmm. It's funny that I'm sending everyone to a Simpsons episode, but, it's like, there's just something about it that has really resonated with me. This idea of taste as a classist construct. Uh, kind of, like, this idea that, like, owning certain things makes you superior to others.
3: Well, and I think it really, like, strikes at the roots of your aversion to the luxury and aspirational side of things. Like, I, I think it's, like, a very stark illustration of, like, all of the of the negative connotations of that
2: you know and for me that's been I felt like it was something that I had to keep a secret for a long time mm-hmm. like the reality is there has never been a moment in my life where I have thought or wanted any of these luxury brands you know what I mean mm-hmm. and I found over the years that this like for so many people I was surrounded by specifically at work but also sometimes socially that they expired for these things, that nothing could be as good as these things from these brands, you know? And yeah. it always seemed so silly to me. And I thought for a long time, because I think we all internalize a lot of the biases that we you know, we encounter all the time. I mean, I it's not like I think we do, I know we do. And well, I feel I was-
3: like they think- I feel like they kind of leach
2: into us, like like the microplastics. You know,
3: like once <laughs> yeah. you're just like surrounded by them that much, you just like without even realizing it, it's like one day you're doing something and you're like, what kind of like what kind of zombie am I? Like, why am I? I don't.
2: I know. Do I know. You so know? like. The, I guess what we're saying is that, like, biases are the microplastics of psychology. And so I like that. <laughs> well, that, that reminds me of something
3: that I heard on. Um, I really like that. I think that's such a good line um, that I heard on this conversation with Duncan Trussell and Jason Luev, where Jason Luev said that in the 21st century, meditation is a way of oh, how do we put it? it's a way of decontaminating ourselves from roving memetics.
4: Wow. Interesting. And I
3: felt like that was like, it's sort of exactly what you're saying though, that it is, it's like the microplastics of our psychology of our like interior consciousness.
2: Right. So they get into you. So like, I could say, Hey, I grew up poor. That doesn't make me like a less valuable person. You know, like I could know that intrinsically. I mean, think for a, big chunk of my early life. I didn't even know we were poor. I didn't really know we were poor until high school. And I survived just fine and felt very confident, right? But the moment Mm -hmm. I realized that I was poor, I felt ashamed. And as I got older, rather than that shame sort of working itself out, you know, it kind of flourished inside me. And Mm. My career shifted and took off and I would go to work every day and feel like I had to be this other person while I was there that I most certainly was not outside of work. And you and I have talked about that before. Like, like even though I was really good at buying what made me not like, you know, the dream team member was that like, I care about things. And a lot well, of the members I mean, didn't, or at least ostensibly did not.
3: That's exactly like what Marge is going through in this episode where she's like constantly talking about like, oh, I'm making such a big effort to sit in. Like that's that same thing, which may be why this episode is so, poignant for you because it is all about that kind of like code switching that you mm-hmm, need to do mm-hmm. in order to have like, you know, your sense of um your your sense of like belonging in this field that you are um struggling to succeed in.
2: Yeah, no, I mean it would be true. Like I could spend Sunday afternoon with you sitting on the beach eating chips and talking about like all the things that are wrong with society and. Oh, know, yeah, experiment. and doing some tarot of the cat people. Yeah, of course. of course. And then immediately Monday morning go in and be like, okay, like let's talk about what's aspirational. How can we make people feel like they need to buy more things? All these things that. Yeah, when you say, when you say something like teen witch is up. Yeah. You
3: know, <laughs> varsity, varsity puff jackets
2: are down. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I would – God, I remember – this is, like, apropos nothing, but I remember about a year ago being in, like, we were all eating lunch together and talking at work, and I forget someone, – someone stopped by who worked in engineering and talked about how they were going to go to medical school. Both their parents were doctors, but then they – had decided instead that they didn't want to commit their lives to it. And so instead they, you know, became an engineer. Right. And I said, you know, it's interesting because I went to college thinking I was going to go to med school. That was always my plan. My counselor sat down with me. and was like, listen, people like you don't get to go become doctors. Like you don't have enough generational wealth to keep you afloat while you're, you know, taking all these tests, getting tutors, going to medical school. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, people like you just don't get to do that. That doesn't mean you can't, but I really think you need to rethink your commitment to this because it's Mm -hmm. going to be an even bigger commitment for you than anyone else. And Mm -hmm. I thought about it and I was like, you know, I, I don't want to commit to this life. Like I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old and so I, I shifted my focus and rather than like what I had hoped for that to be was to be like, Hey, you know, I agree with you. It's like such a commitment for everyone. It was hard for me to imagine someone making that commitment at that age. What I realized I had really done was out myself as a poor person. And Mm. it was so fucking awkward. And no one was the same towards me ever again. Mm. And this was just, I would say a few months before I got laid off. And I can't help but to think that there is some correlation there.
4: Mm. And
2: uh, I was angry at myself after that, where I was like this You have successfully, for all this time, come across as this sort of person who has never defined what class you come from, which has allowed people to think that you are perhaps from a higher class than you are, and that that has allowed them to let you in, you know? Um, Yeah. And I was mad at myself. Of course, later I was like, fuck that bullshit. Everybody should be like, good for you, Amanda, for building a career out of a trailer park. You know what I mean? But no, Nobody ever says that, though. No one it, ever says that. Weird... And it's just, like, really fucking awkward. <laughs> oh.
3: I think that, like, what it does, and I, I can't speak to this from, like, the point of view of someone with, like, amassed intergenerational wealth. But I do think that, like, what it does is it, like, creates a little twinge, I like to imagine, where these people are given an opportunity to evaluate their own privilege, and usually the first thing that happens in that situation is that they try to like remove
2: the irritant that is creating
3: that yeah. discomfort for them. Well, because no one
2: wants to feel guilty, right? Guilt is like yeah. one of the worst feelings you can have, and mm-hmm. when you're sort of like confronted by someone who hasn't had sort of like I mean the privileges that you had there were two ways you can go there you can acknowledge that or you can just be like annoyed that someone mm-hmm. is making you feel bad and you can yeah. let that like sort of manifest itself in all kinds of other like microaggressions afterwards and a then, lot I, of defensiveness usually comes a out lot of, of defensiveness <laughs> all right well I gotta I gotta get back to work but this was a really yes. delightful break so thank you so much Oh, yeah. Thanks for doing it. I'm looking forward
0: to hearing all the goodies on Wednesday when you've done all this work.
2: (laughs) Okay. I'll talk to you later.
0: Talk to you later. Bye. It was so fun to sit down with Jem. I mean, virtually, obviously. She's the best. And I have some good news for all of you who have missed her. She and I are working on some Patreon-exclusive episodes about the British monarchy and all of the, like, merchandise that's generated around them and their big events. You know, like, Princess Diana's Wedding, or the Diamond Jubilee, all this stuff. That'll be coming in a few weeks, so stay tuned. Okay, next is a conversation with the one, the only, Selena Sanders. We're going to talk about our priorities for 2021, our thoughts about current events, and she's going to share some wild stuff that she learned about the future of the fashion and retail industries.
4: Hi, everybody. It's Selena, Selena Sanders. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you all know her um,
2: and we were just starting to talk before I started recording about how hard it is to find that balance between like I don't want to be oblivious it's a privilege to ignore the news like I want because I'm an activist because I care about things I'm going to consume all this news and know what's going on but then like you can reach this point where I'm like mm-hmm. I can't take it anymore I feel so overwhelmed and so exhausted I mean what do, what do you do? Yeah.
4: I took, you know, a few, like two weeks off during the holiday Mm
2: -hmm. and
4: a lot of it, I actually took the time to just sort of strategize because I, I completely, and you and I feel the same way as far as like, we feel like there's so much to be done and we have to make sure that we do our best to, you know, sort of make a change in all the different aspects that we care about. And there's so many things, right? Like Mm -hmm. not just, it's, it's not just fashion. There's so many different facets to what we strongly want to fight for but at the same time i this amanda everything that you've been saying on the podcast everything that you've been posting on instagram i don't know what it is it's almost like i feel like you're literally more eloquently just putting into words exactly what i am feeling and what a lot of people are feeling and i think that's why people are resonate to the message and that is progress, not purity. And for me, the word progress is really important. As I was sitting and like strategizing my year for 2021, what is it exactly that I have in my control and what changes can I make Mm -hmm. in those small steps that I can? And Mm -hmm. I feel like I would much rather tackle things that I know can be realistically achieved with what I have been given as far as like my own expertise. I cannot, unfortunately, be the storyteller for everybody else's problems, because I mean, they're all our collective problems, but I have not necessarily walked everybody's life in order Uh for me to be that bearer of the message. So my job now for 2021 is to really do a lot of listening. I also want to make sure that like when everybody, like today, you and I had a conversation about it's Martin Luther King's national holiday today on a Monday. and all of a sudden you're bombarded with so many of these like almost like fake um, quotes, I mean, like just so that it's like, oh, it's like trendy to put a quote about MLK. But in reality, it's like, what does that mean? Right? Like, mm-hmm. are we taking the time to like sit down and really analyze what that means? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, what is it for my for my sense of my own way of activism, what can I do? And I think this is gonna segue into the reason why you and I are even having this conversation. And that is I did want to talk to you and share with you about something that significantly happened to me and my business mm-hmm. this year. Um, and sorry if I'm going like a hundred miles per hour
2: because <laughs> Sorry, I had two iced coffees before we started talking, so my brain yeah. is going very fast right now, so it all makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. But you
4: know what I mean? Like what what can I do in my own space and how can I enact a change that somehow will at the end of it connect with everything else?
2: You and I both know there's just so much there's just so much. You know like what what are you thinking is going to be like your big focus for 2021?
4: So I share the same sentiment as you. You talked about for 2021 that you really do want to be a lot more active in making sure that there is some change that's being enacted in some of the actions that you're participating in. And it's really, it's almost like, you know, words are important, but at the end of the day, we all have to kind of just like be a lot more um, conscious of what's going on and actually really use our voices in our own powers, whether it's. Like you were saying, whether it's in what we purchase, really pressuring the people that we purchase from to um, really, you know, make the changes that they can because we have that power. For me, as a as a small business and also somebody who has a platform, it really is going to be. I mean, I understand. Like 2019 for me was a lot about um, monetary donation and time donation. Um, because COVID, you know, I can't volunteer as much as I Uh used to. I can't really go out and actively be present and protesting like I used to prior to COVID. So what I've only been doing is really volunteering a lot of my time. And that's whether I'm making products and selling it and then putting 100% of the proceeds towards causes I care about, or, you know, before I post anything on stories, social media, whatever, I need to take the time to research And really actually give information as accurately as I can before I'm sharing it with the people that follow me because, you know, like I said, misinformation is also a big thing, right? There's a lot of, there's Mm -hmm. this sort of, um, you know, we we get attracted to like, oh, that's a beautiful drawn like meme, you know, but then we don't sometimes take the time to like really look at what's behind it or why it was started in the first place. And then we just repost it because it seems so convenient to click on that repost button, you know, but in reality, there's so many other perspectives and different sides to the story that we need to tell. And I'm a fashion brand. That's not supposed to be my job, but I'm also understanding Mm -hmm. that I do have a platform and a voice and I want to make sure that, not only are my customers and my audience like really looking to me for beautiful garments or whatever, it really is also about the intersectionality of all the things that goes behind the reason as to why we even consume in the first place. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how do we hold companies accountable, but at the same time also making sure that it's not just about product, but it's also about, you know, social impact. What is
1: mm-hmm.
4: What is the role of social impact within brands and um, how can we make the changes towards the betterment of the life of not just the environment, because we're all, Selena Sanders really starts from environmentalism, but in reality, it's become bigger than that because if we don't care about people, it, it, they could go together, it's hand right, in hand. Right, you know, right. People and environment go together. You cannot claim, to be sustainable without caring for workers' rights and exploitation of labor or, you know, good working conditions, all the things that you
2: talk about and all the things that Clothes course is about also. I mean, that's often what's at the the heart of greenwashing is that Mm -hmm. even if your entire line is 100% recycled fabric, if you pay people five cents a garment to sew it, it's not sustainable. And I feel like, you know, for me, when I think about, like, what is my big, like, mission or focus for 2021. I think I'm really going to be focusing on the people aspect of it, even though planet is really important to me. They're so intrinsically linked that every time I'm talking about people, the planet is part of that anyway, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've definitely been really thinking, like, what can I do for workers' rights? Like, I'm still I'm reaching out to a lot of people. I'm figuring this stuff out, but I'm definitely going to talk about it more and more and more and more.
4: You know, I love that you say that, too, because unfortunately, sometimes being an environmentalist is a privilege in its own Mm -hmm. because not being like, think about just like the basic things maybe are cliche things that people who love the environment say it's like oh i can drive an electric car or i can like you know have a really healthy plant-based diet or you know all these things like they're all kind of rooted in privilege and and, in reality uh, people regular people and especially the people who are economically disadvantaged they don't have even the slightest time to think about the environment because they have bigger problems to figure out like basic things like putting mm. food on in the, on the table or you know what i mean like just just basic necessities so and on top of that they are the ones obviously getting the brunt of basically the results of climate change so people at this point here like you were saying i think for 2021 we really need to deal with the reckoning that is you know just compounded by what's going on In our country and in the world with the pandemic and just so many people going through such a hard time right now and Mm
1: -hmm.
4: i i think like you said 2021 is a big part of what that's going to be like for me the same way i know that like i said virtual activism and fundraising is something that i was doing but for this coming year and i hope to God that the pandemic restrictions start to ease up so that we can actually physically be there. I wanna volunteer more. I wanna mentor children. I wanna bring them into the fold of, you know, kind of like what I do, teach, p- teach the new generation skills in like mending, sewing, like teaching them anything that I know trade secret wise so that like people can continue um, this sort of way of um, creating fashion and being able to make a living for yourself. You know by Mm -hmm. just like acquiring certain skills i think that that is important but i have to figure that out um just because of the restrictions we have right especially los angeles i mean right now COVID's ridiculous here so i'm taking it one at one day at a time i have big plans and plans always don't necessarily they don't always come to fruition just because things change all the time and we're thrown so many curveballs you know know. every day yeah, um, it's really, really exhausting. And but at the same time, adaptability is something that we've been able to kind of learn. This is a skill that we've all kind of gained in 2019. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I mean, that's what I'm trying to do for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that what you touched on something that's really important there, which is like volunteering your time and how important and impactful that is, you know, for me, that's been the bulk of my sort of activism over my mm-hmm. life is I haven't had money to give to people. So instead I've been volunteering my time and it feels weird to be siloed at home, unable to do that. You know, like I'm really yeah. excited for us to be able to get back out there.
4: Yeah. But there's, you know, there's a couple other things too. Um, like for example, I've been sort of dedicating like my last, two to three months now towards the garment worker center um here in los angeles and they actually also have a volunteer program um that my husband is planning on doing and it's basically um if you have a working car you just basically deliver food to like some of the families of the garment awesome. worker center. um so that's one thing it's like no contact you just pick up the food you have a working car a couple hours you just drive and you know drop off stuff um There's also like a couple of other like virtual learning things um, that people can do um, as far as like, you know, reading a book to like children, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a couple of other virtual volunteering um, efforts that I wanna really look into and I'll, you know, obviously I'll share those with you guys, but there are certain things that we can still do in the interim, Um, but like you said, it's not always monetary, actually time is even more valuable in reality you know what I mean? like, I, yeah. It really is. It really is. I mean, um, it, time and sharing of your skill is so much more valuable. So I know that everybody's going through a lot of all of our unique struggles um, financially, emotionally, relationship wise, all of our mental health, um, kind of like the stress that we put on ourselves because of the, you know, the, the news that we're you know bombarded with and unfortunately there's a lot of sensationalism that happens in news too which Mm -hmm. makes it even more heavy and like more distressing than sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture Mm -hmm. so um it really is taking that time to just breathe and you know kind of taking a pause um whenever i always do this exercise with myself because i deal with anxiety sometimes that when I'm dealt with a ton of information that I just have to kind of like take some deep breaths and just tackle each one at a time or kind of walk away for a second, take a walk, you know, like just, and then come back and then you'll have a better, clearer strategy. And then you can also figure out what you can do and what you can't do. You have to be, you have to give yourself grace. That's always kind of the thing I say to myself, because I feel like sometimes I feel like a lot of people expect things from me. But in reality, it's all self inflicted expectations. Like, I, I don't think my customers expect 150,000%. You know, but I always put that upon myself to do it. I don't think mm-hmm. the people that follow me expect that I post something every day. It's not, you know, I, I think that people will understand if I'm genuine and saying, Hey, today, like, I just don't feel like doing anything. Yeah, I think people will understand that because we're all going through the same thing.
2: I mean, I think that is some amazing advice because it's something that I struggle with too. I'm always like, Okay, I'm really gonna take a day off and then I'm like, oh, uh, people are messaging me. I better you know, mm-hmm. I don't want them to wait, I don't want them to be disappointed and you know, no one's going to be because they know all all everyone who knows us knows that we are working all the time you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And no one's like uh, damn
4: corporate training too have you dude, that I like know. you're carrying forward your corporate training like oh. just like oh you have to have like a like a time limit as to like how to respond to an email
2: or like some yeah
4: urgency like i i've been carrying that over
2: as well oh yeah. my gosh yeah i know it's been drilled into us so hard that we don't even know you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my, totally. I mean,
4: I, I in a way, there's something good about that because it is really kind of carrying that professionalism, which, which I think is very appreciated, mm-hmm. um, during these times, especially for providing a service to people. Like, I completely understand, but at the same time, our view of just how people work in the workforce is so skewed, you know? And oh, I, I think yeah. that there's definitely a way for us to start to relook at things from a different perspective in a different light 2020 is going to be the time where we all just kind of like turn over all the tables of kind of the norms and status quo like we have to almost like scratch
2: everything and start over yeah i I believe that i seriously believe that it's like Last year was terrible, right? I think that Mm -hmm. uh, some people, especially, I mean, I see a lot of this like media content out there. That's like, okay, let's put 2020 away and never think of it again and move on to 2021. And I would say, yes, 2020 was terrible. Let's not let all the things that were lost be lost in vain. Like let's actually sit back and say, wow, these 2020 was the way it was because of so many things being broken.
1: Mm-hmm. It would
2: not have been that way had our society, the way we lived our lives, the way our government ran, the sort of system of capitalism which we live under, if all of those things had not been the way they are, our year would have been different. Like, imagine if people had access to free and high-quality health care mm-hmm. We have a ton of other people living right now, right? Yeah. What if yeah. you know, you know what I mean? Like, I just, mm-hmm. I'm not even get started on the the what if that always breaks my brain, which is what if we had a different president? You know, that's like a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But like,
4: what we yeah. realized
2: is that for years, and I mean, decades, this goes back to the 80s, people have yeah. been hanging on by a thread financially.
4: Yeah.
2: No matter what they looked like to the outside world. You know, like, I remember in the 80s, like, We could only go to the doctor if it seemed like maybe we were gonna die soon because Mm -hmm. our family didn't have the money for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. It was like the last resort. It was. It was like totally. Yeah, totally. It was like, okay, you've been sick for two weeks. I guess we'll take you to the doctor now. Yeah, exactly. And like that's why when people act like what's happening right now is something new, I'm like, it's not. It has been going on for. Before even some of the people we know were born, you know what I mean? And I've been watching oh, the. I've been watching this series about the Reagans, and I'm like, holy shit! Like, when Hold we on, were what children, is that? it's literally called the Reagans, and it's like uh-huh. a Showtime series. Yeah. It is just four parts. It's only four hours of your life, and it is so fascinating because. You know like this isn't a time that i had any awareness of really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you see how the new deal really made brought in a lot of things that are actually barely keeping us going right now like unemployment insurance social, yeah. social security medicare all kinds of other programs did not exist before the new deal and basically yeah R- ronald reagan was like, we're getting rid of all of it because it makes people lazy.
4: And that continues to be, like, the talking point of the Republicans Uh, to this day.
2: Dude, I— And it's actually a
4: propaganda—it's a propaganda effort that's worked very very well it really has to the point where people are this is just a talking point that they repeat all the time when they talk talk about social social programs
2: all the time all the time so I have been on unemployment now for almost a year which is in crazy for me as a person who's always been a workaholic like you and Mm -hmm. uh it's the unemployment system is so broken like uh, no one in Pennsylvania has received any payments this year so far because the system is broken. So the last payment anyone got was like the 26th of December. And it's been up and down like that since the beginning of the pandemic. So in the early stages of the pandemic, a bunch of people got together and put together a Facebook group where they would help people figure out their unemployment stuff. And I was helping out a lot of people there. Um, And Mm -hmm. ultimately we had to disband that group and start a new private one because people would just come to the Facebook group to tell us how to stop being lazy and get jobs. like over and over wow. and over again. Yeah. I'm like, "Uh, do you like know what's going on in the world right now?" No. Seriously. See, but that is like the number one problem about this country is
4: and this is again. I'm I was, you know, raised Catholic, right? So it's like, "Oh, you know, they but my family always talks about the teachings of the Bible, and then there's so many people who especially spouse this are almost like this kind of oh you know we are christians we are believers of god and this is we're fighting for this country yet yet you think about like the very basic thing that the bible teaches which is be do unto others as you would do upon yourself it's like <laughs> the, the, the thing about jesus like loving poor people and charity and all this stuff like what happened basically to everybody kind of carrying this mantle of goodness into Christianity. And then you go around and basically tell people who rightfully deserve that money. It's not free, by the way, people are thinking, Oh, you're just like mooching up the government. That is not free money. That is taxpayer money that mm-hmm. you paid for that rightly should go back to you. As the exactly. This
2: exactly. I have to have that conversation with myself too, because, you know, one phenomenon within like, you know, the poor, like the lower class, is that there is that shame of getting assistance from the government, which you've all been paying for, for since the moment you started working. There's yeah. so much shame there that, like, my family, for example, would not take any government assistance at all. It was shameful. My mom wouldn't wow. even get child support from my dad because it was embarrassing. Like, the, oh it was better God. for us to live in, like, really extreme poverty than to have to, like, take a dime from anyone. And I don't believe in that, but like, it's so deeply somewhere deep inside my brain, you know, that I should be ashamed that there have been times where I've been like, I can't believe I have been collecting unemployment for like eight months now. Like what a loser. And then I'm like, wait a minute, no, you have been working since you were old enough to get a work permit at 14. Like you are allowed to
4: collect unemployment right now. And Amanda, you are literally, you have paid more in taxes than some of these corporations ever have. No, I know, trust me, I know, I know. They talked about like, oh, they're gonna try to make America a socialist country. But in reality, there is one thing that's definitely a socialistic about this country and it's called corporate socialism. Yeah, All of these corporations get subsidies for things that they don't deserve, but only because they can afford to lobby our government. They get free money all the time and nobody complains about the fact that they do. And they always say, like Reagan, talking about Reagan, trickle down economics. They're saying, oh, well, they, they deserve those subsidies because they provide millions and millions of jobs to Americans. Well, what kind of jobs are we getting in return? Is Dude. it commensurate to like their tax breaks? It's no, not. No. They're getting more than we are. And we are paying for that, what they are getting.
2: That yeah. also started with the Reagan era. Like that, they cut yeah. the tax code. They did and completely in favor of, you know, rich people and big corporations. It's called trickle down economics. Everyone knows it's a failure. It's never worked. Mm-hmm. Definitely hasn't. And Everything has been broken for so long that it's really important that this year is the year that we really buckle down and say, What am I going to do about it? That's a different yeah. answer for every single person.
4: I completely, I completely agree. And it is really 2021 is going to be really the year of action. And mm-hmm. because now we can start with the new administration, we can definitely hold everybody into account, and we just hope that they will listen. Because in reality, this is a make or break presidency.
2: It is. If, I think about it, that it, all the time. Right?
4: Yeah. If this administration does not look into the roots of why we even got Donald Trump to begin with, because sometimes they're like, oh, we just need to get him out because he's just like racist. He is a symptom of something that's innately bigger and broken within our system. and. The Biden Harris administration has a huge opportunity and they can. I believe that they can. And I, and I pray every night that they succeed in basically addressing all of those issues that will basically make sure that in four years, when we do another election, that a Trump doesn't come back or a Trump like figure doesn't come back. So uh-huh. 2021 for me will be the accountability year. I, I will not stop calling. Just because they say Democrats, you guys do not ever buy into the fact that all Democrats are good because there are good ones, but they're not all good, which means we can't just look at the fact that, like, oh, well, it's amazing. We have like a rainbow coalition going on. You know, there's minorities in the cabinet, there's women. That's fine and good, but we also need substance and we need policy, right? Mm-hmm. We really expect we need to get that policy, those policies implemented and we really need to take everybody's word basically during the campaign and we need to hold them into those promises in order for us to make sure that we do make the change, changes that we need for this year.
2: 100%, 100%. It's like we cannot get complacent. I think, yes, there is a reason for optimism and my hope is that at the very least, we can now no longer be confronted with horrible insanity in the news every single day, which will oh, give us it's energy. Exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. Now we can have the energy to actually make change because yes. it's been exhausting. I get why people have given up over the last few years. There have been times where I was like, I don't, I just don't even know where to start. And I felt like there were definitely periods off and on, last year even, where I was like, I'm so paralyzed by how helpless I feel right now. I have no control mm-hmm. over my life, and I have no way to dig myself out of what this world is right now, and I felt like the thing that bums me out the most is that half of this country doesn't wear, want to wear a mask, half of this country totally hates immigrants, half this country is apparently just ragingly, overtly racist and not ashamed of it, and half of this country supports what Donald Trump does like it was just like I don't know where to begin and now I have this sense of optimism like okay I don't have to wake up every morning open my news and see that like 50 horrible things happened while I was sleeping like I can focus my energy (laughs) (laughs) and that feels good that feels good yeah yeah because it was just something every day every day for four years (laughs) (laughs)
4: i know i know and and i just want to make sure that we try to you know focus in on the things that we can implement and also celebrate the wins you know what i mean I, i i am very grateful of the fact that i still get um messages and i'm sure you do too amanda i mean i am just like so proud of how your podcast has evolved and where you've taken it like the fact that a listener could come up to you or send you a message and say, Hey, I never I never bought um in the sense where I was conscious and now I feel like I have a sense of awareness every time I buy something. Like that is powerful. Yeah. And the fact that you are basically, you know, influencing people's behavior towards the better and towards the good, that is a big win. So I want you to also remember to Think about the wins because those are the the fuel basically. It's the fuel of our of like our actions. I think it really helps us have
2: that inspiration to continue and keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know my view on this is that we are all on this journey together because I mean we've been programmed to be consumers. I mean you and I have been like in the industry where it's like really <laughs> like all about what's new and flashy all the time. But like we have, since we were children, been taught to long for things and buy things. And that's why like this idea of like progress, not perfection, getting rid of that concept of purity, which I think makes people feel paralyzed. It's okay if you have a closet full of Zara clothes, that's fine. Today's the day we stop that habit, right? like right it's okay if you used to be a serial returner so was i i didn't know what was going on these things are hidden <laughs> yes.
0: for a reason i too
2: was just see i too was a serial and returner. didn't you feel like you were doing the right yes. thing exactly
4: actually i just didn't know yes. i didn't know because i never had it's so interesting too because we both work in the fashion industry so we feel like we are experts of how it works yet there is a part of our jobs that we never really address and that is end of life for a product, right? No. So, and that is why I love listening to, you know, your last two episodes with Anna and Jessica. Because to me, it was just like, I knew that these things that had plastic in it was not going to be composed and it, you know, it was going to be here for a long time, but not to that extent of what they were talking about. It's a completely new frontier, I think for me, like as far as like what else, is there to, ta- and there's just, oh my God, it just becomes so much more. It's like continuing in this saga and this story yeah. of, of fashion, like the, the, the just the dirtiest secrets of
2: fashion. I feel like fashion is this microcosm that reflects all the things that we need to change, you know? So I feel like fashion is still a good way to start the conversation because. It's about, like, kind of blind consumerism. It's about hiding the truth about the end of life for these products. It's about Mm -hmm. making maximum profit in every way all the time. That's everything that touches our lives right now. You know, apartment buildings and cars and food, like, everything that we need to exist operates in the same way and so i think it's like a good way to start that conversation also we just need to stop buying so many clothes i mean that's something that i there were times over the years where i would be like i hate myself because i want clothes all the time like i would literally feel that way
4: well you know i kind of wanted to share this information with you because i was sort of kind of you know i was like really thinking about fashion education in general Mm -hmm. And you and I had a conversation about like, you know, what, what was wrong with kind of higher education and fashion yet I was kind of researching and looking into the future of fashion education and what, what sort of, but it's not all, it's not all promising because it's going to even, okay. So let's, let me just kind of set the stage in terms of what has happened to us in COVID in the retail industry, right? There are a lot of stores that are closing. Mm-hmm. The business is not doing well. And so in order, and of course, because this is a billion, multi-billion dollar industry, of course, they are figuring out a way to basically catch up and try to figure out, right? Yeah. Right. That's yeah. every industry, right? That's every industry that's about every to industry. fail, whether yeah. it's a fossil fuel industry. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. So now... They are looking into careers, so some people are basically trying to say we there is now a demand for consumer psychologists. Oh God, that are now God. yes hired uh, for by in order to really study the psychology now of the new quote unquote new buying buying habits of basically new the way that it's, it's kind of in concurrent with the times, right? So that's one.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I can, we can probably dig into this obviously more later, but like, this is just something that's right, just the title of it, you already know what it is. Um, there's another one called Data Editor and Data, um, Data Detective, basically. So it's,
2: <laughs> oh my analyzing... god, tell me more. <laughs>
4: yeah, so you know how everything thrives on data now? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it, we have become people have now become the product of social media.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and
4: like we all everybody knows that. So because of the rise of e-commerce and the fall of retail and brick and mortar, the information and the buying habits, obviously, of and everything that we buy, whether you're on Amazon, like every click you do, every search you do, it's all basically housed in the algorithms and all the um artificial intelligence of the way that these businesses have been built. So in fashion, they are now recruiting data detectives and data data scientists and editors to basically um, understand and digest that information and kind of make these like customizable packets and kits for companies and corporations to wow. understand and target and market directly into the psyche of consumers.
2: Ooh, that gave me, so, like, a
4: chill. <laughs> I know. Hmm. Another one is basically there's a new chapter now of advertising because we were talking, you and I were talking about, like, offline maybe about some of the influencers who use Photoshop and, like, tune their faces and do all of these things to make it look like they're perfect and it's, like, just, like, unachievable, like some mm-hmm. of this physical aspects of it. Well the fashion industry is hitting this market big time so that we may not even know the difference between reality and not reality. So Mm -hmm. they're looking for computer-generated imagery artists. And basically what they do is they've already implemented this in like Vogue Taiwan and a couple of other covers. Because of COVID, they can't do shoots. They basically send this app to a model where they can scan their face, and then basically send that scan to the artist, and that artist can just basically manipulate it and make it into a photo shoot cover. And superimpose, yeah, superimpose, like the backgrounds, the clothes, whatever it is. So in reality, you don't even really need these, like, high-budget, like, you know, photo shoots anymore, and you can just kind of create imaginary things that you would never even distinguish reality from, from that. That's These are all business of fashion article. I will send you the link to it because I think it's just so interesting. Yeah. Um, there are, um, the other thing is the customer experience managers. I think maybe this is something you may know a little bit more, but um, they're talking about just because they were envisioning that malls are now going to end up being more, ex- more of an experience, right? The mm-hmm. so Small spaces are more ex- of an experience rather than you go in there and like you, you see all these racks jam packed with clothes. It's more like curated and like you, it's more Instagrammable. It's more, you know, a little bit of that kind of, um, more muse, like museum of ice cream kind of where you just oh. kind of walk in there, right? Those experiences. Um, yeah, and then yeah. that way you can just kind of like. Click your phone with an app and then you can buy the product and then it gets shipped to you. Those were just new things that retailers were looking into before before COVID happened. And Mm -hmm. so now they are recruiting and looking for people who may be able to do the customer experience manager now virtually. Um, and again, this goes back to man- the manipulation of consumerism and basically using all of those information to basically work against us because they will, they will basically target our deepest insecurities and try to figure out how they can sell us more product. And this is like fashion, obviously fashion related. There are 3D engineers, which will make more products obviously with 3D plastic crap Right. Um, and then,
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know, one thing, though, that's good, at least, is they've added, and I don't know, because we talked about greenwashing a lot. But there's also another big term that I want to, like, like introduce to our vocabulary, and that's wokewashing. Oh, right? it's, yes. Yes. But it, this is so important, because now all of these fashion brands are starting to understand that sustainability and social justice, and the social impacts are going to be key as far as the brand consciousness of consumers. So they are now recruiting people to make sure to study and, you know, get degrees in corporate responsibility expertise and corporate responsibility or corporate sustainability experts. Um, and not necessarily, maybe the intentions are good, but at the end of the day, it just ends up being a marketing ploy.
2: It is. So, it is. I mean, we've seen it so much this year. I mean, you and I were messaging earlier today, like, okay, who has or has not, like, from a brand retailer perspective, posted about MLK today, you know? And I was telling Mm -hmm. you how it seemed like a lot of people were just not posting at all because they don't know what to do. Because in the past, they've been able to just drum up a sale for us. And now they're like, oh, this is awkward, you know? And Mm -hmm. I am obsessed with trying to figure out why Nike has not posted once this year. Isn't that weird? I know. It
4: it really is, especially because you would think, right, all of these brands that end up putting a front, that they are kind of, you know, that they stand for just more than their um, kind of brand image and it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more rooted. And, And that's another thing, too. I was listening to another podcast that kind of resonated with me. And um, it, it was discussing about the fact that the fashion industry is actually, we are in the business of, of culture, we are in the business of um, trends, right? Uh-huh. So what that means is we actually have an immense power, because we can influence culture, we can actually dictate culture, if you uh-huh. really think about it. And To to me, it's just really sad and disturbing that the companies that can impact culture towards the betterment of this country and our planet, they refuse to do it, even if it really, at the end, it seems so logical for them to be able to do it.
2: It's so interesting to me because, you know, I think that their thing is like they're fearful about how much it will cost them to do things the right way, to actually be a leader in terms of ethics. And Mm -hmm. I think long-term they're going to regret that. That, I mean, maybe I'm just being falsely optimistic, but I feel like more and more people are becoming aware of what's really going on, you know? And that long-term that's going to have a really negative impact on all of these brands and retailers. Like I think of Nike as someone who's just been like so blatantly using Mm -hmm. racial justice as a marketing message, like they're the most blatant of anyone actually. And they do it so smoothly that most people can't catch it. And you think about like, we Muslims have been definitely making shoes for them. They have been paying pennies to people of color all over the world for decades now. There is a very clear paper trail of that, right? Mm-hmm. I think finally people are starting to see this. Now, it's like hard for me to say because we, you and I and all of our friends and like the community that we've built, we live in a bubble. But I feel mm-hmm. like more and more people are seeing this. And I just think like Nike's going to have to change if they want to keep selling a gazillion sneakers every year. You know, not that I'm not that I'm like concerned about their business. I really don't know, (laughs) right?
4: (laughs) Right. But I, I honestly, I agree with you 100%. But I also think, to your point, what you said, um, at your, you know, during your last episode is it's just really important for all of us to hold people accountable and like write, calling and writing all the CEOs of these publicly traded companies. Like, I feel like Nike obviously is, um, we all of the, that information to reach out to people is important, and if more of us do it, even if it's just the people that are within our bubble that do it, mm-hmm. we may be able to en- enact some, some change.
2: It's a multifaceted process of us making better decisions with where we spend our money. But yes, if we have the time, sending the letters, the emails, the comments, whatever you need to do, it actually feels really good to do something like that. Like you're like, okay, that's it. I'm. I'm doing it, you know? Yeah. I think that that is a really important feeling right now where you're like stuck at home and you're just like, the world is falling apart, but I have to stay (laughs) home, you know?
4: (laughs) For sure. And there is going to be a sense of it. There will be some sense of satisfaction when change, when we see the change happen, because Mm -hmm. even, you know, even like looking at the pay up movement and just, Um, how big it's growing and the fact that even, um, there is some media coverage in it now, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's slow. It's very slow, but all movements are slow,
0: you know, Mm -hmm. it's not going
4: to happen overnight, but we cannot, you know, we can't waver. We can't, we can't just basically, um, feel like we give, we we can't give up too quickly. It's going to be a long haul and there's going to be work to be done. It's not going to happen instantaneously, but
1: Mm -hmm.
4: we just have to continue to educate the people that are around us and the people who don't have, like I said, that privilege of time. Knowledge is so important, and it's just such a powerful thing, and that's another thing I want to do for, you know, 2021 is I feel like I know a lot of things already because I've seen a lot of things, but there's so much more room to learn and grow, so every day I try to come up with um, a way to learn something new and and not just on like on my side too of you know my bubble i want to also try to look outside of my bubble and see what's going on i saw last week you know after the you know kind of this mob riot that happened on wednesday last wednesday is i was seeing a lot of things on social media about like well if you voted for trump then stop like following me now i don't want to like talk to you yeah i don't think that that's a good solution i'm sorry it, it's going to be hard but you cannot what kind of society would we have if we can't have if we cannot speak we cannot lose hope it, it's always the thing and i love this thing that my my you know my grandfather used to tell me every morning he wakes up and he chooses the kind of day he's going to have i
2: love and
4: that honestly that is it's it's helped so much amanda for me at least i have a lot of complexes and issues and like, you know, I have a ton of aches and pains that I carry in my life. But every day, like he says, I choose. And I will choose what kind of day I have and I will choose the impact that I, you know, that I basically
2: spread around. I me. love that this fact, kind of the thing. I'm gonna start doing that. I'm gonna Yeah wake but, up and ask myself what kind of day I'm gonna have. I think it's Especially right now where it feels like so much of your day to day life is out of your control. It mm-hmm. feels good to say like, Hey, actually, there are things I can c- control about this. Like this is still my life. And you can't, you can't let other people tell you, you no. know, always like you,
4: you get also to choose like what, what you will absorb and what you will repel. You know, and, and what day you're going to fight a war and what day you decide <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, put up my white flag for a second and like just chill for a moment and, yeah. and gain some strength, you know.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Selena. You all missed her, right? It was so good to hear her voice. I'm going to share the article about these new fashion industry jobs in the show notes. And you have to read it because ugh, it's it's like Black Mirror, okay? <laughs> I feel like this whole episode is like all of the Close Horse All Stars, or at least some of them. We've got to get the Bond sisters and Danny from Picnic and Sarah from Wide Eyed Vintage on the phone ASAP. It's been way too long. And of course, all of the other beloved members of this community. And you know, that's my favorite thing about working on Close Horse. I hope that today's episode has inspired you, made you laugh, maybe made you angry. Hopefully, it's going to get your own wheels turning about what you're doing now, what you're doing next, and what matters most to you. Reach out and tell the rest of us what you're thinking. You can email me at amanda at world, or call the, the hotline at 717 925 7417. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. If you want to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also send a direct donation via Venmo at crystal underscore visions. It's the same name as my personal Instagram account, so you'll never forget it. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love hearing from all of you. You can join in on all of our close Horse adventures on Instagram at Clothes Podcast. I'm also just going to ask again, if you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share with me, please reach out. I'm hoping to write and research the script for the Etsy-sode in the coming weeks. For those of you who are interested in contributing to the upcoming close Horse blog, or at least learning more about how the process works, please note that we're having our Contributor Info Session Zoom meeting this Saturday, January 23rd. It's coming up soon. If you want to attend, you need to message me ASAP to get the info for the meeting. You can either do that via email or you can DM me. Although to be honest, if you DM me on Instagram, I'm gonna ask you for your email address because I have to email the info to you anyway. So it's way more efficient to just send me an email and you can do that at amanda at World. Also, if you want to meet other CloseHorse Horse listeners, join the close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link to that in the show notes. If you like hearing the sound of my voice, of course you do. My cat Brenda gives my voice 10 out of 10. You can check out my other podcast, The Department. We started this week a series that is kind of It could go on for four episodes. It could go on for 40. It's hard to say. It's all about the 2000s. Our first episode came out on Tuesday, and we talk about Uggs and Juicy and Celebutants and reality TV and, of course, Perez and Paris Hilton, all the Hiltons. So check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs)